he actually uh, plays a Native American guy that agrees to be in a snuff film to pay off his family. Oh, the Lone Ranger? Yes, the Lone (laughs) Ranger. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Welcome to Sincast, presented by CinemaSins. All right, everybody, welcome to the Sincast. This is Chris Atkinson from CinemaSins, joined as always by the voice of CinemaSins, Jeremy Scott. Yo, hello. And from Music Video Sins, Barrett Cher. Hello, everyone. And today we're going to go right into the movie club and talk about established directors who took a turn. Yeah. You can find me in the club. You should join our club, you and your friend. Now, if you're not going to take this seriously, perhaps we should disband the club now. <laughs> <laughs> I love being a part of things. And uh, it did it either for the better or maybe it did it for the worst, but we kind of enjoy the that kind of uh, that kind of movie. But uh, uh, who wants to uh, kick us off? So on this, this is inspired by Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, which by the time this is aired has just come out the, the previous weekend. And Nolan has shown that he has range yeah. from Memento, the Prestige, the Batman movies. But he definitely hasn't tackled like a big war movie. Mm-hmm. And he's doing it presumably in a very different way. Yeah. Like it's more suspense. It's more, you know, this story that I actually wasn't aware of. But every kid in England apparently knows about this this uh, yeah. story. And because of that, we wanted to take uh, kind of examples of uh, directors that are known for something and that take a completely different turn. Uh, one of the best, I think, in in this type of thing, we're going to go through our best or favorite underseen and underrated one of the best i think is brian de palma doing the first mission impossible movie and this could go the mission impossible franchise could go on this list for you know all the directors basically (laughs) uh but de palma certainly was known for his like you know his pacing his his suspense his uh his really dark kind of yeah and definitely not like a populist action movie. he was mainly known for thrillers horror uh and and the untouchables mm-hmm. i mean and the untouchables uh, you know is is his masterpiece movie that was really his uh, i feel like his only foray into like big studio filmmaking before mm-hmm. this was the untouchables everything else behind this i mean maybe they were you could consider them big studio movies but they weren't you know they weren't like trying for anything yeah i mean was scarface like a huge like I, a huge picture when it came out i, I don't know i guess it must it might have been i mean i'm I, I might be discounting scarface like i always do <laughs> um but uh but i mean he, he could show he could at least do these gangster type you know he, he had done this type of movie th- that type of movie before he'd never done like a pop inter this is what i really trying to get to a pop entertainment summer popcorn flick yeah before. he had never really done anything like that and uh and man this was the first time i remember seeing a director of his caliber given material like this and i remember watching mission impossible going man the the scenes the way they're shot in this is something completely different from what i've ever seen in any summer blockbuster before well and his past really serves him well on this movie i think because it it, he brings a little bit of that thriller kind of Mm -hmm. paranoia to to the film and to Ethan Hunt's character 
but yeah, a complete departure from what we're used to seeing from him. And in my opinion, a big home run. Those close-ups when Ethan Hunt is confronting the the agent and he's like, you've never seen me upset. And yeah. it's just right yeah. on their faces before that huge explosion. It's great. Terrific yeah. use of widescreen. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of times when people decide to shoot a movie in scope, which is the two, three, five to one format, mm-hmm. um, that they really implement it in a way that, uh, is interesting in any way like they're just trying to get that big huge you know oh that's an awesome huge vista screen type of thing or whatever like i want to shoot some uh amazing cinematography sometimes they do it sometimes they just want to have the i don't know they just want to have the space mm-hmm. i don't know they're not using the space like De Palma does in mission impossible like there's so many scenes in there where there's stuff happening over in the corner yeah you know they they he gives details in the movie without expressing them like you know some you know dumb movie would or mm-hmm. whatever it's just kind of in the background a lot of times or just off to the side and you're not really like your your eyes might be trained on one part of the screen but there's other stuff going on yeah but even during the opening scene where they're just yeah. you see the you see like the someone like pouring something in a drink and they're going to give that to the guy that they're trying to get the information from and mm-hmm. everything that's just in the background yeah. Nice. yeah i got another one lined up okay all right John Favreau and Chef. Oh. Uh, and even though his first movie was kind of a smaller movie, he directed Made uh, mm-hmm. with Vince Vaughn. I think that was his first directing effort. Um, everything else he's known for before Chef is stuff like Iron Man, Iron Man 2, Cowboys and Aliens, yeah. Zathura. Yeah. And it's yeah. all this stuff that's either like big budget or action-y or lots of CGI. And then he turns around and makes one of the most intimate human movies of the last several years. Mm-hmm. It's almost like he intentionally said, I'm going to go do the opposite of what I've been doing for the yeah. last few movies and see what happens. And it turned out to be gold. It's a little saccharine at the end, but um, I just find this movie so watchable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wouldn't think watching a, a few guys in a truck making Cubans would be this much fun, uh, <laughs> but it really is. And, and it makes you want to eat Cuban oh, sandwiches. Oh my God, man. I want, I was like on a plane watching chef and I was like, <laughs> can I, can I, is there a way for that truck to be here? <laughs> Can Uber Eats deliver like, to the sky? Even when I landed, I knew there was no way that I could find that truck because it's in a movie, right? But I, I was on a plane thinking, well, damn, if I wasn't on this plane, I could get to the to the awesome chef truck. No, no, it's just it's just in the movie. I love that movie so much. Yeah, it's so great. What's and, cool is uh, at the beginning, sh- him showing off his skills, yeah. like his knife skills, where he's not even looking down, he's just... Doing this rapid chop and well, everything. Well, and his cooking skills, because that's you know hammered home in the next scene where he's basically told, "No, you not, you do not get to experiment. We're doing the same menu we've yeah. done for forty years, and you're going to bring out the chocolate lava cake and everything else." And, but we've already just seen he's so much more talented than that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to go with um, Quentin Tarantino and Inglorious Bastards. Ooh. Nice one. Uh, Quentin Tarantino and Inglorious Bastards. Remember, he's been known to this point before Inglorious Bastards of doing these crime, mm-hmm. uh, action, exploitation, uh, uh, homage type movies up to this point. Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Kill Bill. I didn't know that he had this World War II movie in him. Mm-hmm. Yep. Didn't I mean, this is at a grander scale than anything he had ever done, and he did it effortlessly. Yeah. There, there, that whole opening scene. I know that you uh, say that's one of your favorite opening scenes yeah. of all time. I think it's one of mine too. 
Uh, I did not know. I knew Tarantino had a gift for dialogue, and I knew that he had a, a love of cinema that just sort of like came through in all of his crime thriller. I thought he was sort of relegated to that, though. Yeah. Uh, and to do something like this, and it has obviously his stamp on it, mm-hmm. but I did not know he had that movie in it. No. no, I just read yesterday he's about to stretch again. It looks like he's taking early meetings to make a Sharon Tate movie. Uh, oh, yeah, the Manson Charles murders. Manson, yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess he's already talking to uh, Jennifer Lawrence and mm-hmm. a couple other people, but it would be the first movie he's ever made based on a true story, mm-hmm. which would, you know, I'm sure it would have his stamp, but right. that's going to be another stretch because he's used to being able to create the entire world himself with the pen, and now he's going to have to sort of rely on history and facts. And then Tarantinoized that. Yeah, so. I know. And that, that story is so bonkers that it probably suits him as I'm much sure as anything if else. If he's going to do a true story, this is probably the best one for him to do. Yeah. I would agree with that. But the uh, the thing with Inglorious Bastards is he did it in his way. He didn't have these big, huge battle scenes and shit like that. Mm-hmm. Like he, he knew his limitations, but it set it in a completely different genre. It, yeah. It's a great pick. Yeah. yeah. And you have that both that opening scene and the scene in the bar with Fassbender. Mm-hmm that I think show off directing talent, his previous movies didn't really show that much. Like mm-hmm. you said, he had a gift for dialogue and and quirky characters and settings and violence, uh, but just the raw tension building, yeah, that takes talent, right? <laughs> you can't just do that. You can't set up a camera and capture tension the way he does. Two different occasions, three actually, if you count the scene when they're eating the the cream and the uh, pastry yeah, in, the, yeah. in the restaurant. Um, it's just, it really grew a lot when he made this movie, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And that's sort of the thing that I, you know, I think that's sort of the fantasy casting thing that you do a lot of times with directors. You're like, man, it'd be cool to see Martin Scorsese do a horror movie. Yeah. Or, you know, it would be, it'd be fun to see, you know, this director who's really known for this one thing, go into another genre and see if they can just knock that out of the park because it would be awesome to see what Scorsese's take would be on say Friday the 13th or something like yeah. that could he be would he be able to elevate the material mm. in some way that we hadn't thought of before and would it be would it be something that's worth watching you know cuz obviously every Friday the 13th that has come out even the first one they're not very good movies <laughs> no that one was no. just on yesterday and i watched Kevin Bacon get his get an arrow through the throat oh yeah Everybody dies differently in that movie. Mm-hmm. One chick gets an axe to the face. Yeah, he gets an arrow to the throat. I just—that's a weird movie. That was uh, that was the funny thing that uh, uh, was when we we met with um, David Wong from uh, Crack. Oh yeah, when he was talking about how like all the different things that Jason would have had to do yeah. to yeah. to set up these deaths <laughs> and everything like that. That was a really funny thing that he went through. It is pretty preposterous. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, any other best, or we want to go to favorite. Well, I guess we could do honorable mentions later on. Yeah, we'll do the honorable mentions later. So let's go on to our favorites. My favorite is, I, I think it is a stretch for him. It's Gus Van Sant doing Goodwill Hunting. Because mm-hmm. oh. Gus Van Sant was very artsy. Mm-hmm. Oh, right? yeah. He was super artsy. He was, he's been artsy since then when he did mm-hmm. Elephant and all that stuff. Yeah. So this was, I, I think, a big departure. Even though these were two unknowns, it's a slice of life story. It's like, you know, boy genius story. Got a huge star in Robin Williams and everything. And it's outside of, of his typical purview. He did music videos before. Yeah. He did To Die For, which is kind right. of like a film noir almost. Um, or you know, Yeah, it's got, a, it's got elements of it. Yeah. Uh, and Goodwill Hunting is just kind of just a populist type of yeah. film 
was was a big departure. Well, there's for always him. something weird and creepy and sexual yeah. about a Gus Van Sant movie. Yeah, right. Like my my older brother and my friend Josh's older brother watched My Own Private Idaho. Yeah, mm-hmm. said don't ever watch that. Yeah. We did. We regretted it. <laughs> this has none of that. This yeah, could yeah. have been. This could have been a Coppola film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Like in terms of like like Rainmaker. I don't know why I just went right to another Matt Damon. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> came out the same year. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You are a wealth of information. Yeah, it came um, out. It was like sort of the precursor to Goodwill Hunting. Was the Rain Rainmaker came out, and everybody's like, "Who's this Matt Damon fellow?" Mm-hmm. And then Goodwill Hunting came out, and it was like, "Oh yeah, I enjoyed him in the Rainmaker, kind of." You know? Yeah, yeah. interesting. Um, but yeah, it's almost like he takes his stamp off of this movie. Yeah, you know what I mean. You know what? I was actually reading an interview with him, and he he said he said, you know, I'm going to make this. He's really a fan of anonymous art, and he said, I want to put this out there. For the people, basically, mm-hmm. I don't want it to necessarily be be a Gus Van Sant movie, which was which is a huge departure for him because obviously every other thing that he's done, including the ill conceived Psycho remake, right, um, has had his stamp. It came on out it. the following year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I actually read an article where he was defending that. By the way, oh wow, uh, I don't know how move. you still can, but uh, but yes, yeah, so definitely a departure and one of my favorites for yeah, sure. Great, good call. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I'm going to go with a little bit of an odd pick here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm going to say Jonathan Frakes. You and your Star Trek. <laughs> Will Riker from Star Trek The Next Generation, who, as that show was on, began directing episodes of the show. Mm-hmm. And he still is mostly a television episode director. If you IMDb him on his directing list, he's done a lot of shows that in the last 20 years where he's guest directed here and there and what have you. Uh, but then he really stretched when they made First Contact, mm-hmm. yeah. um, a movie with the fir- Next Generation cast. And in a, in a lot of ways, it's it's not a stretch when you think about, you know, he's very comfortable with these people. He's directed them before. They all know each other. But in terms of budget and scale and story, an episode of TV is completely different than a two-hour movie, mm-hmm. even if the cast is the same. And First Contact is just so good. It is. It's just really, really fun. It's got the gr- perfect moments of drama. Um, the Borg is probably one of the best villains they ever created in mm-hmm. that show. Um, and you know, it's just, it's a big home run and, and it was a risk. I don't think anybody knew when they hired him that he was going to do great because after that he made insurrection, yeah. <laughs> which is terrible. <laughs> so, I, I mean, anyway, it's one of my favorite movies to watch. And I always kind of smile thinking, well, Jonathan Frakes directed this. this. This was the first next generation movie besides generations, right? Yes. They did generations with Shatner, big flaming turd. Yeah. And then they reset with this uh-huh. and then everything they did after that was bad. Yeah. Because they did Nemesis yeah. and Insurrection. Nemesis was the last one out of that yeah. first generation or next generation uh, set of movies. I still haven't seen Nemesis. Young Tom Hardy. Skinny uh, young I Tom Hardy. I heard that was a really mm. bad movie. So it's I, terrible. He's yeah. playing a clone of, of <laughs> Jean-Luc Picard. Oh, yeah? oh really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's why they cast him because he looked like what they thought Picard would look like when he was younger. Okay. It's not a good movie. <laughs> yeah, but first sure Patrick Stewart solid. was fine with it. It would be an interesting study to figure out, you know, how much Frakes had to do with First Contact. You know, is it the big? Is it a, is it a strong script? Is it the Borg like you're talking about? Because the Borg, I mean, everything I ever saw with the Borg was great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then with Insurrection, is that really his fault? You know, is it is it just uh, another you know machine churning out a Star Trek script? And I think we can blame F. Mary Abraham for that one. Absolutely. <laughs> fuck f murray abraham <laughs> fuck that guy that's what his f stands for um but uh 
but yeah, it'd be interesting because, you know, uh, yeah, you're right. It's so different from between TV and movies. You got so much of a bigger budget. Mm-hmm. You have more time. You have probably 300 more employees and crew that you got to keep track of and all that stuff. Yeah. So I, I know a lot of these directors, man, you see some of their credits. It's like they just uh, for dire- for hire TV guy and they, they must make some serious money doing oh, that. They man. do. Mm-hmm. You know, these guys do like two episodes of CSI and then like, you know, three episodes of Law and Order. And you know, it's like, <laughs> Jesus, how much money do you get for all that? There's a, there's a lot of scope in First Contact, too, because you got the stuff on Earth and yeah. you've got the Borg and then you've got the, the regular Federation. Well, stuff. and the stuff that's on Earth, we've gone back in time here, a little mm-hmm. bit like the Voyage Home. Uh, but that's like he's he's discovered James Cromwell yeah, is yeah. discovering warp travel for the first time and he's going to be seen by the Vulcans who are thankfully a peaceful race who mm. will make first contact um and and so there's scale there for the entire universe of Star Trek yeah they've got to help this motherfucker get his ship off the ground or else they're going to probably evaporate like Marty and back to the future <laughs> so um I'm going to go with uh, Spike Lee and Inside Man that oh, is such a great pick this is yeah, a perfect answer another um another movie where you know, Spike Lee, all through the 90s, he had these, you know, you have either racially charged dramas like Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X. Uh, he did Clockers, which I never saw, but Jungle he, Fever. He, did, there, he yeah. never really did anything for a pop audience. Mm-hmm. He didn't do anything for everybody. Inside Man is the first time I remember him doing something for everybody. And man, what a great movie that is. Yeah, oh, it's so slick. good. It's, yeah. it's, it's like way smarter than you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. Like it could have been such a simple movie, mm-hmm. uh, and probably still would have entertained. But there's so much layer and you know, misdirection and, and intrigue going on here that it just keeps you riveted all the way through. Of course, I, Denzel's awesome in everything yeah. he does. Jodie Foster's usually pretty great. Um, Clive Owen, yeah, is pretty much always awesome. Yeah, probably helps to get a great cast. Uh, but what a great movie! And what it's the least Spike Lee in this movie I ever did see. Yeah, him make. he he went out and and he said, you know what, I can I can do anything like the uh, other guys can do. You know, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do a pop entertainment type movie and then and and just you know bag it and tag it. Yeah, and uh, and that's what he did, man. It was and, it, and I really was. I was really surprised when I saw that he was directing that. Yeah. When I saw those trailers, I was like, what? Well, yeah. and, and within the movie, you can see a little bit of his touches, like mm-hmm. Denzel's dialogue, yeah, yeah, yeah. the racial tension or the racial stuff that they throw in when they're yeah. out in the, the car and everything. And, uh, you know, some of the interviews, things like that. But yeah, it's just a complete departure. It's mm-hmm. a great movie. Good yeah, call. Absolutely. All right. Uh, underseen. Underseen. So I've got a really underseen one. Mm. The Ninth Gate. Oh. Okay. Uh, okay. Roman Polanski Donnie directed Donnie Jepp. Donnie Jepp. Johnny Depp. Oh, he was totally in it. Donnie Jepp was totally in that movie. Is Johnny Depp in that movie? Yeah, Johnny Depp is in that movie. Donnie Jepp is not. Donnie Jepp is is a uh, is totally the, different actor. He's the non-union Mexican equivalent. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Steven Spielberg. <laughs> but uh, so this is Roman Polanski, who's probably most famous for Rosemary's Baby and Chinatown and things mm-hmm. like that. And I th- yeah, at this point, he was in Europe, uh, exiled basically mm-hmm. uh, for his uh, his misconduct here. But uh, found a way to make this really interesting movie about like sacred books and rare books and things mm-hmm. like that. It's not the greatest movie that you'll ever see, but it's a huge departure, very underseen, and a really good performance from Johnny Depp. Mm-hmm. Um, Frank Langella's in it. Um, it's it's just a, an, an interesting story. Is this a, is this a Satan movie? 
Yes. Well, See, it's, I don't it's like generally a, go for the Satan movies. Yeah. This is probably because of my conservative Christian upbringing where I was terrified of hell. But if a movie looks to me like the devil's a main character, I generally avoid it. Except for except for Al Pacino. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like when it's actually going to be like demonic, like that one Paul Bettany made with the angels and demons fighting. Oh. I, don't go, I don't go to any of that. that. Legion? Oh, yeah. Was that what that Legion, movie? Yeah. 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 Did you not like uh, Rosemary's Baby? Never saw it. Ah. Oh, Rosemary's Baby is is definitely terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, I love it. I, 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 I don't think I've seen The Ninth Gate. Um, I could have. It's one of those movies that's a blur for me. Mm-hmm. I know that I was working at Hollywood 27 when it came out, and it was a movie we didn't get. Oh, and really? It was very strange not to get those type of movies. Now- it could have been that I believe it was Artisan Entertainment that was behind Ninth Gate, uh, who did uh, Blair Witch Project. Oh. They may have uh, wanted too much of the opening weekend, even though that movie wasn't going to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just didn't get it, and I never saw it. Yeah. So I can't really confirm or deny whether your pick is good. No, it's interesting because what I'm getting mostly to is that it does not look like a Roman Polanski movie, besides mm-hmm. that it's set in Europe and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's very unlike his, his normal stuff, and it's it's a good watch. Okay. I'm going to go with, in a cheating answer, the most underseen movie of all time, mm-hmm. because no one has seen this movie, because it hasn't been made yet. No. Oh. And that's World War Z 2. That's a cheat right there. <laughs> I know. And David Fincher. That's because a-, a year from now, this would be my answer, because... <laughs> How the fuck is David Fincher making World War Z 2? That is crazy. He doesn't do sequels. He doesn't do zombie movies. Probably because of Brad Pitt, right? It's got to be. I mean, they've made so many movies together. Their relationship must be good enough that they've come up with something they want to do. I imagine he went to him personally and said, would you please direct this movie? (laughs) They made a shit ton of uh, money on that first movie. They were going to make a sequel regardless. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm, you know, I'll watch it. Anything David Fincher makes, mm-hmm. he could make The Ninth Gate 2, and I would watch, starring <laughs> Donnie Jepp, and I would watch it. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so my real answer is Clint Eastwood and Space Cowboys. Yeah. Ah. Because this is a movie that has fallen off the map completely. Mm-hmm. Most people who are, even consider themselves movie fans probably haven't seen Space Cowboys. Right. And I'm not saying you should, uh, <laughs> although I do think... It's a fun time. Mm-hmm. Basically, you got four old astronauts from 40 years prior who, for some reason, the movie makes up, have to be shot back up into space. Uh, it's Clint Eastwood. It's Tommy Lee Jones. I forget the other two. It, that's how forgettable the movie is. <laughs> now, I remember smiling and laughing. There are young astronauts going on the mission with them. So it's basically, this movie was made for people who are my parents' age. It's ah, made yeah. for the senior citizen crowd who, who are going to laugh at all the jokes of, like, Clint Eastwood creaking after he does an exercise. or It's the wild hogs crowd. It basically is. Oh, that's it. It's wild hogs in space. Yeah. Now, the reason I'm putting this on this uh, stretching is that I basically, when I hear Clint Eastwood's name as a director, I always think drama. Mm -hmm. Always. From Unforgiven to Mystic River to Million Dollar Baby to Letters from Bima Jima to Gran Torino. He's always making dramas. Mm -hmm. Um, And here in the middle of all of it, he made this goofy geriatric 
comedy. Is it really a comedy? I didn't know. Yeah, it was. Oh, it's, a, it's, a it's a comedy. No kidding. By the way, um, the other the other people in this: Donald Sutherland, uh, James <laughs> Garner, and guess who? James Cromwell. <laughs> <laughs> nice. He's going to come up ninety two times today. <laughs> That's right, James Cromwell, official friend of the show. Now, yes. <laughs> I think uh, I think this is what started the codger genre. Yeah. Because this is where you started getting these like old guys go to Vegas, old guys you know go to this, or old guys like you know it's always some <laughs> sort of thing like well you know there's not enough movies out there for the 60 year old set you well, know i mean bucket list is part of right, this crowd bucket list that that uh richard dreyfus uh old gangsters moved to florida movie yeah, 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 about yeah. Before. The crew. i think you're right this if it didn't start the genre it cemented the genre yeah yeah uh, and now every year there's at least one what i call geriatric comedies and that's fine i'm not putting it down because yeah. hey guess what a lot of senior citizens in the world they like to laugh they like to watch movies and see familiar actors doing their thing yeah they make movies for kids who are five years old like storks and trolls and shit yeah and they make movies for people who are older and mm -hmm. i'm not judging that i remember having a good time i only saw it the one time it's probably pretty forgettable uh but definitely on the underscene. yeah so. and definitely a departure for eastwood uh, yeah, too. exactly i think we're at a point now where we think we know that danny boyle can do just about anything yeah mm -hmm. at the time that he did sunshine I don't think I was expecting him to come up with a big, thoughtful sci-fi no, thriller. Yeah, no. and when our our buddy Alex Garland was the writer on yep. this movie too. Uh, I love how we're just casually throwing that out there, like <laughs> yeah. we know the dude. But people are uh, gonna assume that. We yeah, yeah. Friend people. of the show, James Cromwell. <laughs> well, because they... we have some, like Jeremy Simpson, yeah, and people yeah. we've made friends with that are in the industry, and then we just make up others. I, I don't, I don't want to <laughs> give anybody the wrong idea. We don't have any friends. So. Um, but, uh, but uh, Danny Boyle and Sunshine, man, uh, I had a, you know, had a particularly great experience with this, watching this in New York at the Sunshine Theater. Oh, wow. And having Danny Boyle come out and talk about it after. Oh, gee. That nice. was a really, really cool. I'll always remember that, you know, that, uh, that uh, thing. But, uh, but yeah, man, uh, I don't think uh, very many people have seen Sunshine, and it's got a great cast in it. Mm -hmm. It's got a, you know, it's it's basically a bunch of astronauts going to fix the sun, mm -hmm. and uh, it's uh, it's just good. It's Why just, is just this underseen? You're absolutely right, but it seemed like it came and went. But it's got a great director, great cast, mm -hmm. got like, great, great concept. Yeah, yeah, I mean, everything about it is, should scream like this is a, a, a touchstone of his career. But yeah, hardly anybody has seen. I knew this. somebody at the theater who said this is his favorite movie of all time but he may have been the only person in that building who had seen it oh really uh, besides me uh -huh. and uh and yeah i don't hear people talk about it as much I, and it, it it's kind of one of those things like i'm glad that we have this forum yeah, yeah, yeah to yeah. tell people about it go watch some sunshine man get yeah. you some the uh <laughs> like um danny boyle yeah before this had done stuff like shallow grave train train spotting uh the beach mm -hmm. uh the uh he did 28 days later which sort of gave you that idea that he could span out into other genres and everything now he just does everything yeah yeah but uh but before then you didn't i wasn't expecting a big sci-fi movie from him. he was still known mostly for train spotting i guess at that point yeah definitely and man that's a good pick yeah i like that movie. all right i want to watch that movie again <laughs> underrated underrated all right i've talked about this movie before but i'll give just a quick shout out to alfonso coron doing great expectations okay which is very very i the rotten tomato score is 38 percent it's better than that for sure now it's on that this is an interesting pick too from you because 
I agree in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had done a little Princess before this, which I think sort of suggests that he could do a Great Expectations. Mm-hmm. Like we see movies now that he does, and then you go back and look at Great Expectations. You're like, oh, really? He did that? Yeah. I don't know if this is really on that track. Yeah. The same kind of spirit of the track we're going for, but mm-hmm. uh, I, I respect your choice. Well, that's good because I've got another one. Yeah. And another friend of the show, Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so Branagh was known and is still probably best known for his Shakespearean stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's doing Murder on the Orient Express. Of course, he did Thor. Which has that fucking Imagine Dragon song in the trailer yeah. for some reason. <laughs> what I was That is the most out of place song I've ever heard on a movie trailer. I disagree. Yeah? Because I heard the most out of place music on a trailer that I saw yesterday. Valerian, you know, the, the music yeah. in the background of Valerian? Oh, yeah. Is a slowed down version of Gangsta's Paradise. Right, right. I heard that the other day. <laughs> But you know what? They do that. They do that with a lot of trailers yeah, nowadays. They, they see that slow down <laughs> version of a song or whatever. But like, I remember watching that Murder in the Orient Express trailer, and I was like, "Well, you, like, if if you told me beforehand, go through the Rolodex of songs that you could go through to play, that would be the last one." <laughs> <laughs> also, I noticed today it seems like all Imagine Dragon songs are one word titles. Mm. Ah. Radioactive, Believer, Demons. That just heard a new one today, Thunder. Oh yeah. Hmm. They don't like to go extra words they're on like, the title. They're like the the Friends episodes where they're like yeah. the one about the yeah. the one yeah. about the <laughs> Well Pearl Jam had that problem on uh, ten. They had all one word songs mm. pretty much. Um, and then the next in verses, they had a song called El- "Elderly Woman Behind the Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> Behind a Counter in a Small Town." That's yeah, my exactly. favorite Pearl Jam song. That's uh, a great one. Uh, so anyway, Kenneth Branagh, still known for Shakespeare and stuff like that, did Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Yep. And Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is not a great movie. It's got Bobby D in it. Uh, it's got Helena Bonham Carter, and of course Kenneth Branagh in it. And it is fun. It's watchable. It's probably it's definitely the best version of frankenstein that i've seen mm-hmm. including you know i frankenstein or whatever the hell came out right. uh, recently and it's definitely a departure for him because this was his first kind of foray into <laughs> it was a, a bit of a blockbuster at that point well-known monster property and everything and based on the the actual source material mm-hmm. so uh you should probably watch it it's good it's uh, got a 39 percent run de niro was frankenstein yes he, well, he's the monster yeah the monster yeah, yeah, yeah. fucking technical motherfucker <laughs> yeah you know what i've read mary shelley's frankenstein and i still called the monster frankenstein during that it's fucking, ubi- like, yeah it's yeah. ubiquitous <laughs> at this point they're interchangeable but yeah branna plays victor frankenstein mm-hmm. and actually um is really really good really compelling it i believe this is where uh here's the salacious details of that movie this is where kenneth brown met helena bottom carter and then he started cheating on emma thompson and uh and uh that's uh broke them up home wrecker that's right yeah now basically he's been with like two of the best working british actresses Mm -hmm. yeah at least well i mean he has i don't i don't know if he's been with judy dench but (laughs) (laughs) helen mirren uh, back in the day (laughs) well i don't like my pick for underrated just because i've talked about it before Mm -hmm. and i couldn't come up with something i hadn't uh but it's brett ratner and uh red dragon Mm. Uh uh-huh because brett ratner is an action comedy guy yeah money talks rush hour movies uh and then he comes along and makes basically a psychological thriller mm-hmm. almost um it's not as good as silence of the lambs <laughs> it's not an a plus yeah but it, it's extremely watchable Definitely. and mostly it's due to 
like because Ed Norton's pretty forgettable. He's just kind of playing a guy. He's not bad in the movie or anything. But we get um, <clears throat> we get performances from people like uh, Ving Ving Rhames. Jesus Christ, Ray Fiennes. Ray Fiennes. <laughs> Same very similar. Faith rhymes. <laughs> um, and I'm blanking on another name. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman. You mm-hmm. are saving my ass right now. Uh, and then the Emily. I always get her name. There's like three British Emilies, and I always fuck them up. <laughs> Emily Watson. Emily. Yeah, it's Emily Watson. I think. Yeah. Um, and uh, they just kind of sell the creep. They yeah. sell the creepiness. The scene where he kills um, Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, is really disturbing. Yes, it is. Um, pretty much all of his interactions with Emily Watson are disturbing because she's blind mm-hmm. and he knows it. And it does get to a point where, you know, creepy stuff's about to happen, but she doesn't. Yeah. yeah. And then she realizes something bad's about to happen and she starts to lose it. And it's really unsettling. Um, and you get a little bit of you know Hannibal Lecter in here. Mm-hmm. where. Basically, the way they use Lecter is the same way they used him in Silence of the Lambs. Ed Norton goes to talk to him to pick his brain to try and understand this other killer. Um, I think it's a totally watchable thriller. I don't know what its Rotten Tomatoes rating is, but it's been forgotten by filmdom, and it's really watchable. That first scene, the dinner scene, where it's showing Lecter um, pre-anything, pre-before he was captured or anything like that. And, uh, you know, he's serving them this, you know, fine, upstanding uh, table, like, human stuff it's mm-hmm. like the board of the opera or something yeah, right yeah. exactly exactly and uh you know he knows he's serving them sweetbreads or whatever it is and then that that scene where edward norton comes in will graham comes in and confronts him yeah is super tense it is um, it really is and uh yeah no, that's a good pick. and that's the era that the tv show went back to uh the tv show hannibal hannibal uh-huh that I hadn't seen Mads Mikkelsen's in that. Yeah, it's supposed to be great, but they went back to that era when he had yet to have even been caught. Yeah. Um, one of these days I'll check that out. Me too. Yeah. Anyway, I like this universe, and this movie's way better than its reputation. Mm-hmm. So, and and most of today's fans have probably not seen this mm-hmm. movie. So, all right, for my underrated, I'm going to go with Kevin Smith and Tusk. <laughs> wow. <laughs> nice. Okay. Um, obviously Smith known for comedies at this point. Uh, and Tusk definitely has comedy in it, but here's the thing. Tusk is a, I think is an absolute winner until the actual walrus shit comes into play, which luckily for the movie is only in the last 20 to 30 minutes of it. Uh, it is Kevin Smith's best writing he's ever done. There's a scene in there between Justin Long and Michael Parks, Mm -hmm. um, where they're just sitting by a fire or whatever. And there's just this long conversation. And it just pulls you right in hmm. to this whole movie. Now, it's got daffy moments in it, of course. And there's Johnny Depp playing, uh, or, or Donnie Jepp Donnie playing, Jepp. <laughs> playing, uh, playing that weird investigator guy with a long nose and, you know, outrageous Canadian, French Canadian accent and all that. Uh, but, uh, but the movie is way better than it gets credit for. I think, uh, it is, yes, a movie that they made because they were talking about it on a podcast and just basically randomly came up with the plot on a podcast and then they wrote it and made it out of, is it literally about a guy turning into a walrus like the entirety of the time or no. So Justin Long is, he's a, he's a podcast guy and he wants to go to, he want he needs to go to Canada for some reason. I can't remember why. I can't remember the whole reasoning mm-hmm. for why he was going, uh, going where he was going, but he ends up basically getting knocked out by this Michael Parks character and Michael Parks sort of uh, makes it seem like 
he found him and that he's taking care of him until he can get him to a hospital but they're way out in the middle of nowhere and they can't do it right now and he's in a wheelchair so the so really the it it's it gets up to about an hour or so before i think the walrus shit even kicks in oh uh there's that long conversation and then there's like a a, sort of a a black and blackening out of some sort and then you know by that point that's when you start seeing him as the walrus and everything that's where the movie definitely falls apart don't don't get it don't get it wrong that (laughs) that premise is stupid um uh but everything leading up to that is terrific and i know a lot of people won't give the movie a chance because of its premise you know turned a guy into a walrus for some stupid ass psychotic reasons Mm -hmm. but um but everything leading up to it is great Oh, yeah, check it out. It. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Anyway, when it gets to the, being the walrus, I, you may, you'd be fine to turn it off, probably. <laughs> I may do just to just assume, all right, walrus shit is going to Walrus shit is terrible. <laughs> go on. Go on with your lives. So I uh, want to go over a few of the honorable mentions yeah, out man. of this. Um, I, I listed Paul Thomas Anderson for There Will Be Blood because mm-hmm. that's another big, huge, epic type of movie that we weren't expecting from him. He had done these uh screwed up dysfunctional uh family unit type movies like magnolia and boogie nights and he'd done punch truck love but um nobody i don't think anybody expected him to have a big movie like you know that Mm. kind of scale and just knock it out of the park like that yeah uh also steven spielberg the color purple um he had done nothing but big huge summer blockbusters to this point uh and and 1941 yeah and uh and so the year after the temple of doom he comes out with this this movie which is terrific by the way mm-hmm. uh so uh that was a stretch for him yeah i absolutely. feel like that's something that i didn't think anybody saw coming and he went on to a big stretch of these type of movies empire of the sun came later mm-hmm um always <laughs> yeah always but then he did schindler's list and amistad yeah. and saving private ryan so we knew he had it in him by that point but uh by the when color purple came out i I wouldn't have picked spielberg to be the guy to direct that should have won best picture over that bullshit out of africa too <laughs> <laughs> um i had um also i had this is one that you might have an argument with wes craven for scream even though he had done horror movies, yeah, yeah, he had never done anything this well shot, well thought out. I don't think. And there's a lot of people who love Wes Craven. They love mm-hmm. some Wes Craven horror movies and everything. I, I've I've yet to be on board with a lot yeah. of those. Even the original Fr- uh, Nightmare on Elm Street is not a movie that I I really hold in high regard. Yep. Um, when he did this, he he was able to take a look at his own work and basically like make fun of it, taking this Kevin Williamson script, and he made a fun, well shot, beautifully cast movie. I was not expecting that out of him. That's mm-hmm. his best movie to me. I know that's probably sacrilege to some people, but I think me too. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but he, you know, a lot of people love his, you know, people under the stairs and shit like that. Um, did he make the craft? No. He should have. Much like Danny Boyle, um, we could put basically the entire Rob Reiner uh, filmography (laughs) up for this category because it's the man intentionally set about to reinvent himself genre wise Mm -hmm. almost every single movie he made. So I just wanted to mention that. 
Um, I also had Tim Burton for Ed Wood. Good call. That's great. Yeah, uh, that was in my underseen category. Um, I want that Tim Burton back. Yeah, mm-hmm. no kidding. Uh, Tim Burton, obviously, before this, was known for a lot of these fantasy, weird Edward Scissorhands type movies and Batman. Uh, but uh, to to do a movie like this, I mean, it's very Tim Burton still, but it's it's not anything that he had done before. Mm-mm. Definitely not. Um, I also, in my uh, underrated put, I've mentioned before, uh, basketball, David Zucker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I wrote, I wrote here, I said, it's a movie that's so terrible in some places that it's, it's easy to forget the good stuff that's in it. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and yeah, it is a shitty movie. <laughs> <laughs> But man, are there some some belly laughs? Oh, in you'll that. laugh your ass off in this movie. Yeah, and uh, this is this movie is beneath David Zucker. He had done Airplane and Naked Gun and Top Secret; those were his best. But uh, along with you know, I get by this point, his his brother Jerry had gone off and just done other things that could really fit it. If you like First Night, Jerry Zucker doing yeah. First Night was. Uh, <laughs> was a complete departure well ghost was even yeah, more it right? was even yeah. more first um, night my wife was watching this movie the other day and i was like what are you doing <laughs> what are you doing this is like the dumbest conceived king arthur story in the history of mankind let's make king arthur 90 yeah <laughs> and then let's take richard gear dramatic heartthrob and make him an action sword fighting star mm-hmm. like the movie miscasts everyone except julie orma yeah Anyway, yeah. fuck that movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's our uh, movie club uh, for this week. Uh, let's go on to our next topic, which is women in film. I'm a motherfucking woman. What the hell is going on around here? Played one, Sam, for all time's sake. You better keep your mouth shut. Oh, I think I love him. Super duper trooper. Get the fuck out of here, Congresswoman. Women. Girls. Power. That's right. <laughs> Empowerification. <laughs> We do so much guy talk on mm-hmm. this show because we're guys and our perspective is that of from the male perspective. And it's easy when we do movie clubs or questions that our answers often end up being male centric. Um, and you know, we wanted to be intentional about breaking that cycle for an episode and highlight some of the best pioneering most important women in the history of film. Mm-hmm. Good call on the topic. By yeah. The way. Now, unfortunately, we're probably going to be a little light on like women of the past like 30s 40s 50s and stuff like that there's obviously a lot of pioneers there mm-hmm. uh so sorry for that 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 uh miss <laughs> we weren't alive then yeah so you know, um, no, no, less about I, it and the, the oldest one that i have come up with is ingrid bergman because everything that i ever saw ingrid bergman in was amazing yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh I, there's a reason why she's the the picture on my phone yeah <laughs> uh she she was not only uh gorgeous but she was an extremely talented uh, actress and like uh if you guys want to see see her at her best watch gaslight which i believe she mm. won the oscar for uh that's a great movie and she's great in it but mm. uh, that's just sort of a little kickoff what do you what do you guys think well if we're talking about actresses um i've got an older one too and it's almost a cliche at this point but audrey hepburn yeah mm, uh has has really earned her cultural icon status mm-hmm. i think uh because when you look back on it, in in her movies, she owns all, almost all of the movies that she's featured in. Mm-hmm. You think about Breakfast at Tiffany's, obviously. 
Um, I mean that that's her that's her movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, My Fair Lady, same thing. Um, and uh, Charade, she's great in. Yeah. And this is stealing the spotlight from people like Cary Grant and people like huge stars. Yeah. yeah. And uh, she's able to hold her own, and she is hilarious. I, I mentioned. I don't know if I've mentioned Funny Face in in this podcast before, but Funny Face, she's acting right next to Fred Astaire, mm-hmm. like in his kind of a little bit past his prime, but where he's cemented as you know cultural icon mm-hmm. status. And she not only holds her own, she owns that movie. I think. Yeah. Um. And uh, now she she is a better actress, I think, than she gets credit for because mm-hmm. she gets credit for being this manic pixie dream girl type yeah, of yeah, thing. Yeah. And she's a, much more than that. She's got a lot of texture to her performances even though her performances are typically adorable yeah uh it's it's more than that so that's yeah. that's a great great actress people have been looking for the next audrey hepburn for a really long time i don't think they've ever found it speaking of julia ormond yeah. that was someone they were trying to be that's funny because uh because you know audrey hepburn was in the first sabrina and then mm-hmm. julia ormond was in the remake yeah and uh and they were trying to get her to be the next audrey and you there's just the thing is you can't be somebody from the past you well, have to be somebody yeah yeah yeah. I audrey mean, tattoo is probably the closest yeah and she's not audrey hubbard it's like looking for the next michael jordan yeah know? there's yeah. nobody like michael jordan but audrey hubbard it, what she had was kind of a worldview because she was born in i think belgium uh and w- had that european sensibility i think and you know, somebody just from like the the mid Atlantic states in the U.S. and doesn't have that particular worldview. I guess just doesn't have the experiential status to to put their imprint on their performances. And she had it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Good call. When my wife was watching First Night the other day, she there was a shot of Julia Ormond. And my wife was like, "She's so beautiful." <laughs> and I said, there was a time where she was going to be the next thing. Like, mm-hmm. There was a good couple. I think she made a. This is literally what I said to my wife. I think she made a movie with Brad Pitt. And after that, everybody said, let's make her the thing. <laughs> and then my wife and I had a 15 minute conversation where she could not understand why it didn't happen. Yeah. She's beautiful. She's got talent. I was like, I don't yeah, know. This, movies, just, this is how Hollywood works. Those sometimes. movies never took off, though. I mean, Sabrina, which I actually do enjoy, mm-hmm. uh, wasn't a huge hit by any means. First Night certainly wasn't. Mm-mm uh they take they take uh a couple of big hits and people really loving your you and your characters and all that it takes a lot of things to become that famous yep. and that good she showed up later in mad men as um oh that's right as the mom of uh what's her name i forgot all about that but uh, and she was good in it yeah but you know yeah it's just the this it, it takes that was such, her yeah yeah it takes a long time to get to i think it takes a, a lot to get to that status where you're audrey Hepburn. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. i mean it takes so many forms of luck and the right movies and mm-hmm. all that and she i think she went to the right path it just it just didn't work out I'm not going back as far as you guys, mm-hmm. but I think I have a similarly iconic female actress uh, who's earned it, uh, and that's Sally Field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Who, uh, now, I have a connection to this movie and this story um, because I sat behind her at a screening of Norma Ray at the Music Box Theater down the street from where you used to live in, in Chicago. Chicago? Mm-hmm. We went, we, this is when I was in college, and we decided, let's go to the Chicago Film Festival. And we were like, okay. We didn't know it was playing. We got there, and the next show to play was Norma Ray. Mm-hmm. And we're like, all right, I've never seen Norma Ray. Let's go in. We go in, we get in the second row. Freaking Sally Field walks out and sits right in front of us. Nice. That's crazy. And watches the movie with us, and then does a little Q&A afterwards. But that movie is a really good capsule of, I think, her career in terms of how 
she took hold of what she was going to become, just like the character in Norma Ray takes hold of her own situation. It's a labor dispute movie. Mm-hmm. I think it's based on a true story. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's great in it. Uh, this is not the one where she does the Oscar speech. You like me, you really like me. Yeah, that was uh, Places in the Heart yeah. where she did that. Um, but she's Oscar worthy if she didn't win or get nominated for this movie. I'd never seen it. She's really great. And you just look at her career. Uh, she can play any kind of woman. She can play fragile. She can play strong. She can play attractive. She can play, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you just look up and down, like, punchline. Mm-hmm. Where oh, that's, the, that's a completely, so like, new kind of a role for me to see her in. Um, everything to Mrs. Doubtfire and even the Spider-Man movies with Andrew Garfield. I thought she's earned this place like Martin Sheen to be cast in this iconic role. Like she's, this is perfect. Mm-hmm. Honestly, one of the worst things about those movies tanking is that Martin Sheen and Sally Field are no longer Uncle Ben and Aunt May. Yeah. <laughs> because I think they would have been the best in those roles of any of the trilogies we've had so far. So. She's, man, she, in her prime, and God bless her, she's fine now, but in her prime, I had the most massive crush on mm-hmm. Sally Field. Uh, I guess it was probably around, because I had grown up watching Smokey and the Bandit and uh, and things like that, and even Norma Ray, I think. But yeah. Right around Mrs. Doubtfire, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's good, Sally Field, right yeah. there. <laughs> surprise, Sally Field. Yeah, a little surprise. Sally Field. <laughs> um, um, good choice though. I the, the thing that I saw Norma Ray recently, like a, maybe like last year, was the first time I saw it. Uh, it's interesting to see Sally Field's eyes in Norma Ray. They're always like sort of darting back and forth, and I don't know what that is. Hmm. It's Cocaine. Some, it's cocaine. <laughs> no, just kidding. Sorry, it's not cocaine. <laughs> Please don't go James Woods on me. So That's I right. Uh, but uh, it was one of the things that I noticed about her performance, and I was wondering if that was on purpose or if there was something with the lights mm. or something like that. It's really interesting, but she's great in that movie. Yeah, it's a is. great movie. And the, the Later on, it was sort of, uh, what was that movie that uh, Charlize Theron was in? Uh, that, oh yeah it was the same kind of thing only coal miners yeah something country something um north country what'd you think of her in uh, lincoln well I, that's one performance i actually didn't like her at. no well, she was nominated say, wasn't she i don't if she was it was just because she's such an icon yeah, that yeah. character's annoying as balls yeah, yeah. it was north country the mm-hmm. Charlize theron one was the sort, sort of the same thing and there's always something interesting about these I don't know, working women movies always seem to really bring out the best in the actress a mm-hmm. lot of times. Those two and uh, Silkwood with Meryl Streep. Mm. Uh, though, I mean, they really like, I don't know what it is. They're because they're fighting for stuff and they're yeah. like, you know, they're like, they're not going to let the men, you know, fuck them over and all mm-hmm. that type of stuff. Um, it, it is something about those movies that just brings the best out i don't mm-hmm. know what it is charlie yeah. theron's great in north country too well which is charlie a- theron is one that i would add to this list i think in 20 years she'll be at what sally field's level is now oh she's yeah she's had a really long diverse career uh i think she empowers a lot of other women um both in the stuff she does off screen and characters like furiosa by the way i just read the other day she quoted in some interview is saying the script is ready for the prequel to fury road oh it's called furious cannot wait for that now a little hot tub time machine here we're going to see how she loses the arm yeah oh probably or is she going to be the whole movie with one arm i don't know i don't know it'd be great if they never explain it (laughs) oh it's gonna happen right now it's gonna happen come on 
just compared Fury Road to Hot Tub Time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, it's going to have the same effect. If the, if we get a prequel for Furiosa and she's got two good arms, we're going to be waiting the whole movie. Yeah, yeah it'll be, it'll be. I think it'll be good if she already has it lost mm-hmm. because it will be that type of thing. You're absolutely right. Uh, especially now that you brought it out into the world. Um, but uh, give me more women, Barrett. That uh, sounded wrong. Let's stick with let's stick with actresses, man. Okay. Oh, um, you guys know that I'm always gravitating towards comedy and everything like that. The one of the best ones of all time is Madeline Kahn. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. Uh, and you watch her in Young Frankenstein. She's actually not in Young Frankenstein very much, mm-hmm. but she almost steals the movie because of how good she is. Yeah. And um, and of course she's great in Clue yep. as well. I mean she. She is um, one of my all-time favorite comic actors. Mm-hmm. She just knows where to go for it and yeah. everything, and uh, and especially in Young Frankenstein, I really love her in that. Oh, she's hilarious. I keep. I think this whole talk I'm going to skew more recent than you guys because I'm an asshole. <laughs> um, but I think Julia Louis Dreyfus is headed that direction. Absolutely. And she's had three great what I would call eras because she was on SNL, mm-hmm. and then she did Seinfeld. And then where everyone else from Seinfeld has crashed and burned <laughs> repeatedly, she went made Veep. Yeah, um, I see what you're saying. Now, her stint on SNL was not very long lived. I no. think that was that one season. And it was during the the period of time SNL didn't have Lorne Michaels. No, but I just I give anybody that was on SNL back then credit just for having been part of what yeah. that would be become mm-hmm. um she's she's she wasn't eddie murphy when when she was right. on that show but having been associated with the early seasons of, of snl i think is a notch in her yeah. icon status yeah. uh and i you know can't wait to see what she does after veep is done because she's now shown me enough comic talent that i'm i'm confident she's going to succeed oh yeah and, and what who do you what do you think is better her character in veep or her character in seinfeld veep veep is amazing right i mean, I mean Elaine, just this is going to sound wrong, but she's more one note than the character is in Veep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The character in Veep on the surface feels more one note, but over the course of the show has shown us a lot of different sides to her and looks inside. Um, a vagina well, building killed me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I just think it's uh, there's more substance there. There's more uh, showy work for her to do as a comedian. Um Whereas Elaine was just sort of, she was going to do one of two things. She was going to yell, get out and shove you, or she was going <laughs> to disdain some lower person in society beneath her. They really built a character in Veep. And, and even though I was a little down on this past season that went on and everything, just she's at her most fragile yep. and she's at her meanest. Uh, she's at her meanest. She's at, uh, I mean, there's a lot of things going on with her character in this where there's a lot of things that are justified about what she does and there's a lot of things that are unjustified yeah. it's hard to really kind of keep up with all the things that she gets you know feels like she is entitled to in that in that show and uh they really have built a character where almost you know you can it, you you know her character better than like as well as the writers do that's how mm. well that they've yeah. written her she's an heiress too isn't she like she's rich as balls what the actress Julie no Lee Julie Louis Dreyfus oh, herself? Well, I'm sure she's rich now. No, she's she comes from like this billionaire. When you said money. she's rich as balls, I heard 
she's Richard's balls. <laughs> I thought you were making a Richard Dreyfus comparison. Oh, wow. That would be crazy. And I was, I thought, well, so what a really wrong joke to make. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you weren't saying that. No. So you think she's like, uh, do, you, do you think maybe Seinfeld stole that candy bar heiress joke? From uh, maybe so because yeah zone. she she comes from a ton of money like Interesting. she's uh, she's very very rich even her. before all mm-hmm. that stuff mm-hmm. yeah mm. uh, I guess I'll do one more actress here but uh, I think over time has kind of forgotten how good Jodie Foster is yeah mm-hmm. um, because man she was like fearless when, mm-hmm. when she was really in her heyday she's been doing it since she was like six taxi driver right I mean well before taxi driver even she yeah. was a she was in like what was that uh, was she in paint your wagon or one of those she was in that movies. candle shoe movie that i love to talk about oh yeah um but then i mean after that the accused and then went on to do you know a crazy variety of things but in two movies that i i thought about obviously silence of the lambs she's terrific mm-hmm. in. and when you can hold your own with anthony hopkins doing one of his most iconic yep. uh, characterizations and she holds that whole thing where he's he's getting the story from her her background and the lambs and all that stuff she she stays in there, man. Yep. Like she locks gazes with him and doesn't flinch, mm-hmm. both as a character and as an actress. And that's amazing. But I think one of the most underrated performances is in contact. Yeah. Uh in contact, man, she she don't give a fuck about mm-hmm. your opinion. She doesn't need a man, mm-hmm. even though she ends up with Palmer Joss. Um yep. but uh but not really romantically, like it's just kind of a one to two night stand. Mm-hmm. You know, she's driven by her career and that's a really cool thing. And she's she driven really makes it believable. by her career, but it's deeper than that. She's driven by seeking knowledge. The search. Yeah. yeah. She's uh, the the purest kind of scientist that we get to see in movies mm-hmm. is that that is the most important thing. Well, you her. think about like how long she's been out there just listening to the sky. Yeah. Like I think it, I think context says something like four years later or something like that. It is. And in the book, it goes into much more detail about that span of time mm-hmm. where like, she's literally moving the satellite one click over listening, yeah. moving it over. And, and all that's all she's doing. And, and, and like almost anticipating Every single time, even though the chances aren't very likely that she's going to hear anything. And that's one of those that, you know, those four years later or whatever gloss over a lot of times. She's been doing that for four years, going out into the desert and listening for eight hours, maybe longer, probably longer. And then just going home and probably sleeping for five hours and then coming back (laughs) and goes into the office and like checks all the equipment and then gets in her truck and drives back out to the desert, you know? Um, didn't they that signal came from something that they already checked wasn't it like she went she doubled back and uh, because uh, William Fickner's character says like oh no we've already checked that out like a couple months ago mm, and, uh, they, and they may have misunderstood what it was mm, or whatever or they or they thought it was something else I don't remember that in the movie it's just but, like a little detail of like her it, obsessive yeah, nature you know? but it very well could be mm. I wouldn't be shocked or you know anyway yeah good call on Jodie Foster mm-hmm. I mean she uh, yeah she's sort of been forgotten I don't I it's probably that awful thing that hollywood does with the older women mm-hmm. and you're not what you were back when you were you know i mean she had i think she had an awful performance in elysium yeah uh but overall she's super i mean like great and a uh, a legend yeah know? she's great and inside man yeah so um yeah she, it's a good call mm-hmm. for uh for my last actress i'm assuming we're gonna move on to mm-hmm. directors or something after this mm-hmm. i'm going back to Mary Tyler Moore. Mm. Yeah. Now, 
she had, like Julia Louis-Dreyfus, she followed up the Dick Van Dyke Show's success with the Mary Tyler Moore Show, mm-hmm. which is probably what she's more famous for, mm-hmm. but which I have seen far less of. Um, now, I can jam on some Dick Van Dyke Show. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen that shit. That's great. John mm-hmm. Ritterose's entire career to Dick Van Dyke, mm-hmm. tripping over the Ottoman. Mm-hmm. Um, and like much like you were saying with Jodie Foster and uh, Hannibal Lecter in that scene, the, Mary Tyler Moore anchors this show. Mm-hmm. The star is Dick Van Dyke, and he gets most of the comedy. But if you do not have someone with the same chops to go toe-to-toe with him in these scenes, um, like Mary Tyler Moore, I think a very few people could have played this role great. And you look at most great sitcoms, at least family-set sitcoms, uh, have a strong mother character. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cosby Show, Home Improvement. Uh, that all that's all because of Mary Tyler Moore, hmm. because she invented it with the Dick Van Dyke show and broke broke the mold of how an actress is supposed to play that kind of a role. Um, and I'm telling you, it's it's probably still in my top five best sitcoms ever list. Dick Van Dyke show holds up really good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really funny and classic. Nice. She later had a, a pretty uh, awesome turn in flirting with disaster. She's great yeah, in that I love movie. that. Yeah. Kind of <laughs> almost like Betty White in the Crocodile movie, busting <laughs> yeah. the conventions of what we're used to with her. Absolutely. That's a great movie. Yeah, it really is. David movie. O. Russell. Yep. Um, all right. So directors, um, I'm going to go with, uh, again, I'm going to go towards the comedy here, and I'm going to go with Amy Heckerling. Oh, good nice. call. Uh, Amy Heckerling, uh, Clueless, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Uh, she did uh, European Vacation. She did, um, and she did Johnny Dangerously, which is a movie that I had no, I forgot that she had done that. Yeah, which uh, you know is a movie that um, uh, I don't, I don't know if it gets any respect at all. Like I think a lot of people just call it a stupid comedy. Yeah. Michael Keaton is great in that. Yeah, he is. Um, but uh, Amy Heckerling, man, uh, is those all? Those are all like I've watched those movies many times. Mm-hmm um and uh she's got a great gift it's funny too because even while she's uh doing this very difficult job of being a woman director as far as you know having to put up with a lot of shit and everything there's that great i saw that thing about fast times at ridgemont high where phoebe cates was having uh issues with doing the nude scene and phoebe cates tried to appeal to amy heckerling and saying you know like like, is there, you know, sort of like, you know, hey, we're sisters in this. Don't don't make me do this or whatever. And she told her, I'm I'm a working director trying to make my studio happy. You're going to be doing this scene, you know, <laughs> that type of thing. <laughs> well, and she's it wasn't something like we're making this for 15 year old boys or trying to pretend you're a 15 year old boy or something. Well, that was uh, that was actually road trip where uh, Amy Smart was having a, having trouble doing her new <laughs> too, too much talk of Amy's and boobs. <laughs> That's like, right. Get them all confused. <laughs> like uh, Todd Phillips said, do it for all the 15 year old boys out there. <laughs> right. She's like, OK, um, but uh, but yeah, man, uh, I've seen Fast Times at Richmond High like an insane amount of time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I'm probably a, a great deal of bias entered my head and thinking there's no way a woman directed this movie yeah. because it's it, there's like, you know, the, just like what we're talking about with the Phoebe Kate stuff and then the Jennifer Jason Lee stuff mm-hmm. and all that. You're like a woman directed this. Are you sure? <laughs> um, but 
it's so funny, man. It is. Such a good movie. And, and some of credit, at least a sliver goes to Cameron Crowe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. For, you know, for going in and doing the sort of the 21 Jump Street I thing. thought it was cute. I've seen all these headlines about Tom Holland spent a week undercover in a real New York high school before filming Spider-Man Homecoming. <laughs> and I'm like, Cameron Crowe could eat you for breakfast, you little punk. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. What's crazy about Amy Heckling is that how she captured the moods of teens in two different complete eras yes. yeah. between clueless well, and, and captured the eras perfectly. yeah exactly it's, it's nuts yeah clueless is 90s as fuck oh, yeah. <laughs> but she got it down man yeah. like yeah i mean it, I, every time i think 90s i go back to that movie yeah absolutely and way another great big credit to her on this was that i remember seeing the standee for clueless we bought we i mean i bought the theater i had got a got a standee for it and it was like you know it was alicia silverstone and stacy dash and Brittany murphy all with like these like bags yeah, and glitter yeah. and all this other type of shit and i was like what kind of fucking ridiculous movie is this that we're getting <laughs> this is gonna be a piece of shit and then it comes in and man it's smart it's really well done man yeah that movie took everybody by surprise mm -hmm. I think. yeah my pick for director or one of my picks for director had a whole sitcom career it's almost like a like a ron howard type of situation oh i know who you're picking but penny marshall, penny marshall! had a great run of <laughs> she did uh, these are movies that i really like she did big obviously which mm -hmm. is which is a huge thing she did a leak of, her, of their own, mm. which I really love. Yeah, it's a great movie. Uh, another Tom Hanks vehicle, and then she did uh, Awakenings, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. I thought was a really no, Awakenings is good, really good movie. Is that too. the De Niro one? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah, so I mean that that alone is a is a great stretch. Now, of course, she had uh, other stuff. She's had other directorial uh, efforts too, and then of course she was. She was Laverne, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know which one she was. I just know she was on that. <laughs> she was on Laverne and or Shirley. Yes. Uh, but man, I mean, to go from that, it really does remind me a lot of Ron Howard doing Opie and then yeah, uh, yeah. The Happy Days and, and then, then becoming directing. this world-class director. Um, so yeah, she could. She looks like she could stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with anybody. How talented is the Marshall family? Because mm -hmm. Gary Marshall's out there, too. I mean, we're talking about women today, but mm -hmm. talk about iconic yeah. Hollywood personas yeah she's Did, great uh, was it gary marshall that died earlier yeah, this he, year? Died, yeah uh, he was like in his yeah, 90s he or something was like that? he was he, he died had a long like no long earlier this year oh okay uh I thought you said earlier today opinion <laughs> yeah that would have been awful <laughs> would have been yeah, gary marshall's out there well not anymore um <laughs> <That's> <laughs> a three hours ago. i just checked my twitter um <laughs> um but uh Penny Marshall, just as an aside, this is I, I have a feeling that this is what a lot of of studio heads did uh, are like, or at least back in this day or whatever. The Buddy Ackerman character from Swimming with Sharks. Uh -huh. There's the part where Frank Whaley's character says, "Why don't we get Penny Marshall to direct this?" And he goes, "Penny Marshall, a woman on a shoot on a on a shoot on a monthly shoot," and uh, and it's like I'm you know that that has probably set some women directors back because guys yeah. are sitting there thinking oh they ovulate blah 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 <laughs> yeah 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 we can't we can't have, we can't deal with that we can't what deal if she with gets ovulation pregnant? right we can't even risk it uh, um i don't have too many directors on my list i kind of just did like a aimless list of women and then some of them happen to be directors mm -hmm. but i think we should probably talk about Catherine bigelow mm -hmm. yep and she's probably the modern leader of the charge mm -hmm. for female directors with zero dark 30 and the hurt locker 
Mm-hmm. Uh, she also made Strange Days, which I not encourage you watch because it's you can watch the fucked. trailer though. The trailer's awesome. The trailer's awesome. <laughs> the movie's fucked up. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, I'm hard pressed to find another female director working today that has accomplished what she has. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you you think about the kind of people, again, it's almost like it's a woman directed this because mm-hmm. Zero Dark Thirty is well, got so much action and, and testosterone and i want to make clear about this bias here it's not this bias we have today it is a bias that when you first are growing up yeah and you get these weird little you know voices in your head whether it's parents or friends or whatever you start looking like oh there oh really a woman did this mm-hmm. or whatever it takes you know it takes you to have some real open-minded study to finally go oh there's really you know they should have had a lot more chances than right. well right. yeah well ideally we'd get to a place where we would never say a woman directed this um it's just man, i made myself look bad well there, then I? I don't a, know. look I know it, it's the problem right you can't say you can't say certain things without sounding like a dick I'm sorry, we're not dicks here. We're <laughs> we're trying to we're trying to discuss this in a in an intelligent way. Yeah, yeah. She and made it, these movies. My point is, it's for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you can watch Zero Dark Thirty without ever thinking about the director's gender, right? Um, and I have to feel like there are scores of young ladies that are seeing movies like this and then finding out it was directed by a woman and then being inspired to go to film school or pick up a camera or get on YouTube or what have you. That the only way it's ever going to get close to equality is by doing more of it mm-hmm. and pointing out when it's done well. And um, anyway, fuck it. No, I agree. Yeah, I it, think she's a great director. There's no right? way. There's no way to sound like we're being some sort of we're we're do what is it the microaggression type shit? No, yeah. It's impossible not to. I think get into that a little bit. I would bit. reverse it. Like, I would watch Thelma and Louise and say, a guy directed this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's true. So. Um, but, uh, yeah, Catherine Bigelow is a really good one um, because, yeah, I, 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 those movies are usually reserved for the big testosterone-type directors, even though Zero Dark Thirty has a female at its center. Yeah. Jasper Chastain's another mm-hmm. person we could easily talk about in there. We could talk about, about a million actresses mm-hmm. today. But uh, but the Hurt Locker for sure, Jesus. like just completely, just like that feels like uh, you know Danny Boyle did it or somebody <laughs> like that. Um, but um, I've got a few other directors on here. Did you get a chance to go through? Yeah, I did one. I did uh, Penny Marshall. Uh, Jane Campion obviously mm-hmm. had, did the piano, uh, and she never quite could get up to the piano status. Uh, she's still working today and everything, but. Um, but she doesn't have this huge long career now she did ma- i mean this huge you know like scorsese like mm. career or whatever but uh that was a, a promising entry and then everything after that's co- kind of like either fell flat or whatever but um sarah polly did the movie away from her yeah. which is a really really good movie that and I she would recommend. Was, she's a great actress in her own right too absolutely and uh also mary heron did yeah, american psycho yeah. And uh, did I shot one Andy Warhol and did the notorious Betty Page, uh, all all three of those. But American Psycho is her signature movie, and I don't think uh, Brett Easton Ellis likes the adaptation of, yeah. of it. But I I've read both the book and watched the movie, and I I like them both equally. It's a hard book to adapt to a movie, and I think she really did a great job. Oh, absolutely. It. Um, it's almost like it, apples and oranges, but it's almost like 
Stanley Kubrick saying, great idea, Stephen, but I'm just going to kind of use the bones of it and make a, a whole different thing with The Shining. Yeah. Like, uh, she, I mean, she kept most of the elements in there, but there's just so much weirdness and confusion in that story well, that there's a million different ways you could adapt it. One of the great things about that movie, I don't know if we've discussed it on the podcast, is the Willem Dafoe character. She shot him in several different stages of of like he, she wanted a performance where he believed that he was doing these crimes mm -hmm. and then another one where there's it's just sort of ambivalent yeah and then another one where he's just there just to be you know whatever so she mixed up all of those so that you think that you're never quite sure where willem dafoe is on this whole thing it's even weirder though that he's not actually committing these crimes. Yeah. So like, <laughs> so is he? Is he like imagining Willem Dafoe? Is Willem Dafoe really real? I mean, is he even a real character in this? Whatever. It's an interesting movie to discuss. No, definitely. I mean, I there could be a lot of things that are not real about that movie. Yeah. Um, she kind of closes it more definitively, certainly than the novel does. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's it's a crazy story. Yeah. Where else do we want to go? wanted to mention Sofia Coppola. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you're mentioning her. Uh, as the director, because even in her misses, which Marie Antoinette is not a great movie. I like um, watching it, though. I like watching it, too. Virgin Suicides is a fine movie. Uh, Lost in Translation, I just watched it recently. It is a masterclass. Yeah. It is absolutely beautiful. And Bling you Ring. Bling Ring, yeah. That's totally yeah, forgettable. Really, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, Lost in Translation, like you can tell that she's got a real director's eye and a lot of control over this mm -hmm. because, yeah, obviously they're they're left for Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson to kind of roam around this area, but she she keeps it very well defined and to have a movie that has that little going on and make it super compelling to watch is really a testament to her talent. Well, and I like how she's clearly established a voice as a director that's nothing like her father. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, until she until she puts out a movie that's not beautiful to look at, mm -hmm. I'll keep watching them. Because mm -hmm. Marie Antoinette really doesn't have anything to offer <laughs> except visuals and an out-of-place Knight's Tale-type soundtrack of modern <laughs> pop music. Uh, it's really not worth watching. There's yeah. not a lot of great... There's almost no script but it's so fucking gorgeous. Yeah, yes. But I will go back to it when I see it, when I'm flipping channels. I hear this Beguiled movie's pretty good, though. It, oh, that's uh, her latest oh, one. Yeah, yeah it's over here at the Belcourt right now. Oh, really? In fact, yeah. Um, uh, but I hear that. I hear that's good. And yeah, she has kind of, you know, had this weird kind of career where she's made these dreamlike type of movies and everything into to some sort of, you know, various varying degrees of success on all of them and everything. I love Virgin Suicides and I love Lost in Translation. Haven't gotten quite to the love factor on any of the other movies mm. that I've seen, like Somewhere and all those. Somewhere is a terrible movie. Yeah, yeah. And uh but uh but you know that she's got the talent to mm -hmm. do it and everything. And of course comes from an incredible pedigree. Yeah, no kidding. Um just don't ask her to act. That's right. <laughs> She's probably a better actress. I wonder if she's like, a good actress now. I bet. I bet she is. Like, I bet. I bet they threw her into this. Can God you imagine how intimidated she must have been on that set? Mm -hmm. yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Give her a break. I know that's insane. Um, it's not anyway. like Andy Garcia is awesome in that movie or anything. No. Nope. Yeah. But he is. He is really awesome in Passengers. <laughs> <laughs> His beard is awesome. Oh yeah, absolutely. How been, let me ask you a question about Passengers, because mm -hmm. I just saw it again on HBO Stars the other day. Where'd they get the fucking chicken? Andy Garcia walks out, 
and there's this, the tree has grown into this huge tree and there's all this growth and there's a fucking chicken and another bird flying. Huh. I don't know. Maybe they maybe they were in uh, sort of cryo sleep, too. Well, OK, but here's my thought. You're going to another planet. Mm hmm. This is the very definition of bringing invasive species with you. Well, you are an invasive species, too, though. That's true. But how do I know that a chicken isn't going to fuck up the total environment? Like, I don't think you would actually take. It makes me wonder where they got the seed to plant the tree. Why are you bringing tree seeds? Does the planet <laughs> you're going to not have its own trees? Yeah. Well, how think, did you pick this planet? They never. They, that's the one <laughs> thing about the movie. Well, there's many things about that movie, but the one thing about that movie, they never really explain what the world is. They, they. I think it's like, oh, it's a place with breathable oxygen. Let's go there. Yeah. And they don't really have any other sort of, you know. <laughs> and the movie so, suggests this is like they've done this multiple times. Yeah, like millions of planets, even like they. <laughs> and they're still putting. American chickens on the space. It makes no goddamn sense. Yeah. And I had never thought of that even when we send it, but it was on the other day and I, I was like, what the fucking chicken doing there? I agree, though. You know, that that probably uh, is a is a really complicated process to put a chicken in cryosleep. <laughs> or maybe that breakfast bar shoots out chickens as yeah, well as yeah, cereal oh, and Oh, I forgot about the breakfast bar that yeah. does everything. Yeah. It's basically a replicator mm, from Star Trek. Yeah. I, that fucking thing pissed me off so many times. That little breakfast thing. Oh, you can't have anything except this one thing and it's like could you just tell him what he can have instead of showing all the different things yeah why can't you just highlight the buttons that are on limits right. so the off limits ones can be ignored right <laughs> fucking dick yeah i know uh you want to talk a little bit about composers yeah sure because that is a very male dominated sure uh, yes you know job in hollywood but there are some really good composers and Immediately, I thought about Leslie Barber, uh, who did the uh, the score to Manchester by the Sea, mm-hmm. and it's a real sparse score. It's very understated and everything, uh, but man, it's good. Mm-hmm. It really fits the movie perfectly, um, and uh, I'd like to see more of what, what she can do. I don't know how long she's been in the game, but it seems like it's just so hard to crack that james newton howard and the newton boys and john, john williams. williams and uh, not james horner anymore but like just the han zimmer like mm-hmm. these this club of composers that get everything yeah and when you hear somebody kind of new and interesting it it just makes you makes you smile well i wrote down one you'll appreciate and that's wendy carlos who did the shining oh and a clockwork orange oh and oddly tron Interesting. Hmm. Those are three pretty iconic scores. She did The Shining? She did The Shining. It says Composer, The Shining, A Clockwork Orange, and Tron. Wow. Nice. And even Tron with all that that computerized stuff and whatnot. So, I mean, and I'm not going to lie. I had to do some research to find some of these people because female composers are so rare. Their Mm -hmm. names just don't roll off the tongue. Uh, but when I saw those three scores together, I was like, wow, why isn't she John Williams today? No kidding. Clockwork Orange also. I mean, it's always remembered for the the Beethoven's stuff in there, but the other score in there is really good, too. Yep. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Anyway, good I thought I'd throw that one out. Yeah, I like that. Uh, and I've I've discussed before, guys, like uh, the, the music of movies, a lot of times, unless it's just super, like, memorable to me, I don't usually pay much attention mm-hmm. to, to music. I will bring up Rachel Portman, who's been nominated three times. She won for Emma. Oh, really? Uh, uh. She got nominated for Chocolat and mm. uh, The Cider House Rules. Both oh. of those are Lassa Hallstrom movies. Mm. But um, 
but uh but uh yeah she uh, a, a successful composer there now she, she hasn't been recognized in a long time she does like millions of scores mm-hmm. well, i went through the the imdb thing and wasn't really noticing like recognizing many of the, these pictures and everything but some of them you're like what really oscar winning composer is doing that shit i mean you, you get the same thing with like a Hans Zimmer or somebody like sure. that. Sometimes you look at Hans Zimmer and you're like, oh, really? You did, <laughs> you know, fist fight, you know? <laughs> <laughs> does fist fight even have a score? <laughs> I'm sure it does. <laughs> um, well, the, the only other one, as far as music goes, you can't uh, discount the impact that Alison Krauss had on Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good point. Now, that was T-Bone Burnett that put that whole soundtrack together and everything, but she was absolutely the most featured voice and talent on there with the siren song and um, just a, I'll Fly Away and all that stuff. Man, it's it's great. She's, she's awesome. An angel. She's, I want to marry oh, yeah. her. That's still the best. Like we we blew it out this year where the Predators went to the finals with all these country stars singing the national anthem. Mm-hmm. But like 10, 12 years ago, Allison Cross and Union Station did my favorite anthem ever. You know, it's funny. I've, you're the second person who has said that. And I, you would think I'd be able to find that. You can't somewhere. find it. And I can't. And uh, and it makes me sad because I do not have that experience. It's like a dirge. It's like a Civil War era mournful version of really yes it was slow and harmony but had some minor notes layered under it's one of the and again i've probably lost 12 hours googling for this thing <laughs> it does not exist on the wow. internet for some reason i but, mean surely somewhere somebody's got a recording of that surely don't call me Shirley. That's right. <laughs> um, I was watching Airplane and Airplane 2 yesterday mm-hmm. on an IMC. It's like, I want to know everything that's happened up until now. Well, first of all, the earth cooled. <laughs> <laughs> Steven Stucker, man. That guy's great. I don't know if you guys have any others to mention, but I am going to mention as far as writing is concerned, Tina Fey. Oh, oh nice. Please, yeah. yes. Um, Tina Fey... Uh, with Mean Girls was one of the funniest movies I've seen in the last oh, 15 years or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, still holds up, I believe. Yeah, um, That's a great movie. I'm surprised she hasn't done more screenplays like that uh, over the years. No kidding. But she did get heavily busy in 30 Rock. 30 Rock is one of the funniest shows that you'll ever see. Mm-hmm. It's one of the wittiest and one of the... Uh, and and carries it on with Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt Yeah, um, that has the same kind of humor I have never had to rewind sitcoms more often than with 30 Rock and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt because it they'll lull you into this, like, here's some normal dialogue, and then just out of nowhere, something will come up, and you're like, whoa, wait a minute, what did she just say? Because it'll, it'll cut away, and the other person's already talking. And by the, the You're like, did I hear that right? Um, well, and she also was the head writer at SNL during mm-hmm. one of the best eras of SNL. Yes. Um, so I think she's already iconic mm-hmm. uh, as a writer, and she's what, 40? She's, no. she's, she's in her she's, late 40s at this point okay so she's got a lot of a lot ahead of her that was the golden wasn't that around that was amy poehler was on there will ferrell was still around mm-hmm. before will ferrell right? she left. Uh, yeah. she there's a, apparently a cast a, a group of people who came in right after 9-11 and i believe tina fey was one and seth myers mm-hmm. and jimmy fallon and all those god guys. damn that was a great cast yeah, it was a great cast. came in right after that and they said their first episode was addressing that or mm-hmm. whatever so um but i uh, think she was was in that era she might have been before may have may have been slightly before i'm not sure but. yeah man 
Man, that's good. I mean, the, the ones that are on there now are perfectly fine. We'll probably look back in 10 years and say, this was fantastic, but <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. 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 That, that's the easiest conversation to have. Pick an era from SNL and say, not as good as it used to be. Yeah. Right? <laughs> everybody has that. Exactly. Right? Yeah. It's just that everybody's era when they think it was great is different. Yeah. Right. So do we have anything new to say about Nature Box? I do. I have been cheating on my favorite snack, mm. a new snack. Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. My uh, aged cheddar pretzels, sourdough pretzels that I love so much. Mm-hmm. They've been supplanted Oh yeah, by the mini peanut butter oatmeal cookies. Oh, yeah. Oh, nice. If you have not tried these, they are basically crack cookies. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> once, you, once you eat the first one... You're going to be like, I don't know if I want to eat anything else the rest of my life. Like, this snack is, it's triumphant. <laughs> and it has changed my life. I have I have ordered three bags recently. I'm not going to lie. Man, Ooh. these guys at Nature Box can, can make a cookie, can't they? They really mm-hmm. can. They got me with those mini crispy snickerdoodles a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And I, I was kind of expecting the same kind of thing with these peanut butter. But they're soft and they fall apart in your mouth. Mm. Peanut butter and oatmeal is just really good combination. That's good stuff. <laughs> I had one of those things with the key lime cookies that they sent yeah. here, and it was it was like, all right, I'm going to get a few of these cookies, and I will be good with that. <laughs> and you eat the like four cookies or whatever, and you're like, I was not good with that. <laughs> <laughs> I need more. <laughs> I need to get more now. And then and then sometimes you're like, you know what? I'll I'll wait 24 hours. It'll be like tantric to you know. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. We've now killed Jeremy. <laughs> oh my god. But we're gonna continue with the nature box fan without him. We can clean that up later. Yeah, no. Uh, but um There is something enjoyable in life and with snacks about depriving yourself. A little bit mm-hmm. so that when you actually do go back it's extra good it's a mm-hmm. flavor explosion in mm-hmm. your mouth mm-hmm. i would never have quite called it tantric mm-hmm. <laughs> but i see the parallel mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm picking up what you're putting down that's right and uh oh, i'm completely lost now you have to carry it Barry. man i uh i'm into cracking the nuts and mm-hmm. last night uh got a little hungry went to bed a little early i was like you know what i'm just gonna kind of chill and uh, brought up uh, a, a bag of those garlic pistachios. Oh, my God. Those are good. And woke up this morning to shells just littered on my <laughs> nightstand. Yeah. yeah. You're, like, uh, you're like Leslie Nielsen in The Naked Gun where he opens up the door and there's like all the peanut shells like basically blocking his way out. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Those get very, very addictive. So if you're a nut guy... Oh man, they got good nuts. Man, I am. I every box I order, I get a bag of the salted roasted cashews, mm-hmm. just straight up, salted straight roasted up. cashews, and they're the best cashews I've ever had. Mm-hmm. I don't even like my mother-in-law. God bless her. She'll always buy me either mixed nuts or cashews mm-hmm. at Christmas time as just like a small gift. Some somewhere ten years ago, she got convinced I loved cashews. <laughs> I don't know why, and they always go uneaten. Um, you know, cashews. A cashew's an okay nut. Mm-hmm. It's not as good as a peanut. Yeah, it's the J.C. Penny of nut. <laughs> That's it's right. It's the Uncle Cracker of nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be honest. Two days ago, I 
I came up with the idea to call something the Uncle Cracker of something, and I've just been waiting for an opportunity. <laughs> and you gifted it to me. It's yeah. so it's so perfect, isn't it? <laughs> it really is, because Uncle Cracker is exactly what a cashew is. Okay, harmless, nothing you're really going to... But these from NatureBox, mm-hmm. I just can't I can't get enough. I keep going back to them. Yeah. I don't know. They put an addictive chemical in it. makes you crave it nightly. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to get snacking like us, just go to NatureBox.com slash Sincast. Ooh. You get three free snacks of the first order man. that's I mean, that's actually like, somebody tweeted me the other day with that deal their first order was like 10 bucks yeah yeah and i was like that's awesome yeah i think that's a good deal it so. is sign up get snacking it's good stuff yeah naturebox.com slash syncast three snacks free in your first order promo code sins yeah join us on the snacking adventure <laughs> that's right i'm going on an adventure <laughs> <laughs> you guys ready for questions i'm ready question question i got something to say I am listening. Let's do it. Okay. What are some movies and or TV shows that you refuse to watch? And for what reason do you choose not to watch them? For example, this listener refuses to watch any movies in the Fast and Furious franchise because after seeing one clip from Furious 7, I've already sat through all the fucked up physics that I can handle. Good on them. (laughs) By the way, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. It's one of the few things that can make me laugh out loud. And you've actually made me look forward to Mondays. Thank you so Mm, much for that. What do you guys think? I have never seen an episode of NCIS anything. Mm, that's a good one. And Dude. I like me some Mark Harmon. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But it just always looked like military CSI. Yeah. And CSI was only really fun for me for about half a season mm-hmm. before I got tired of that shit. Before it started spreading to other cities like NCIS is done. Yeah. I have no interest in NCIS. It, pro- it helps that it's a network show. There's almost nothing about it you could tell me that would make me want to watch it. <laughs> but it basically, it's basically it looks to me like Criminal Minds, CSI, like everything rolled mm-hmm. together, only this time they're wearing military uniforms. Mm. Hey. Yeah. I could give a rat's. So if mm. it was on a TV, like you would go out of your wa- way to avoid that TV? Yeah. I mean, now if I'm at the shop waiting on my car <laughs> and there's five people in there and I can't change the channel without being a dick and it's 98 degrees so I don't want to go outside, I may tolerate it being on the screen. Mm-hmm. But if I have the power and means, I will remove myself from that equation. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't need any of that in my life. It's not poison. It's just unnecessary filler. It's like uh, empty calories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and I prefer my empty calories to be really raunchy, like real world. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Sir, can you please turn that off? <clears throat> yeah, it's seriously. offending me. Anybody mind here if I change this over to the news or, <laughs> or the real world? Runs? Yeah. <laughs> there, there's almost nothing I won't watch. I mean, mm-hmm. there's not anything I've designated as I will never watch that as far as, I mean, you're about to come up with one that I definitely pushes my you know my i'm gonna i feel like we're gonna end up having to watch that at some point though but you know and i came up with a a sort of a funny one like paul blart mall cop like i don't need to watch that right i know it's not gonna be good but i've seen so many stupid comedies i could see myself watching paul blart mall cop kevin james is charming man i don't care if his movies are terrible (laughs) like i like the guy Mm -hmm. and so i would watch paul blart yeah so i would find a way to watch that even though i know it's terrible and everything there is one particular thing though that i thought of and i can't even remember if these were supposed to be movies or if they're just cult video type things but faces of death Yeah, yeah yeah um i remember in middle school people coming and telling me about faces of death and i know and and from what i understand they are fake deaths or there are a lot of them are or whatever 
still, even if it's in any way close to being realistic, I don't really have much tolerance for mm-hmm. that kind of violence or, or death or whatever. Um, I made a really big mistake of watching that dude in the eighties who c- killed himself on camera, the gunshot. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. made a really big mistake of that because I, I thought that the cameras would pull away mm-hmm. and they don't. Yeah. And you just sit there and you're like, Oh, well that was fucking awful. Yeah. I'll never forget it. Uh, so I don't need to see like, you know, stuff like that. So. And yet they made a whole movie called eight millimeter about that shit yeah <laughs> yeah they did i saw that well yeah. i did too but i regretted it yeah it was pretty it's awful. just one of my many nicholas cage regrets yeah that was also the premise of <laughs> donnie jepp's movie the brave oh yeah uh, that i actually i think he directed that it oh, was really? him and marlon brando hmm. and uh johnny depp i'm gonna say it wrong now on accident he actually uh, plays a native american guy that agrees to be in a snuff film uh to pay for pay off his family oh, the lone bit. ranger yes the lone <laughs> ranger yeah exactly <laughs> that would be a that would be a much better movie than yeah, what we got from the absolutely but it was also famous for not being able to uh, to purchase on DVD or Blu-ray for, for ages. Mm-hmm. I think it is now. Yeah. Jesus of death. Yeah, What man. do you got? I'm curious now. Human centipede. Oh, yeah. yeah. No interest. I got no interest. So shit that is gross just for the sake of being gross, yep. I have no interest. I'm not going to ever watch Two Girls, One Cup. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to happen for me. Um, good for you for making it. It's hilarious. The reaction videos and all that stuff. I can't bring myself to do it. I can't bring myself to watch Human Centipede um, in in just the context that it it, it is presenting itself. What about the third itself. one, though? Yeah, the third <laughs> one I'm sure is is yes. much more palatable. <laughs> well, and then there's the more along the sides of I guess uh, mainstream, even though it really isn't. Is Pink Flamingos is mm-hmm. another movie I've never seen because I've heard of the gross stuff that's in it. Yeah, no, I've seen that, and it's it's not pleasant. It's yeah. not a pleasant watch at all. It's, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean that's when I guess I just add more of a tolerance for that. But mm. um, and John Waters just has such a campy style that it's right. It's 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 different in my head. I don't know, but it, I, I wouldn't watch it again. But for the, sure. yeah, those are some movies that I guess I could put Pink Flamingos on that list because I've heard about it and I've heard that it's got its certain genius to it mm. and everything. But you know, you tell me that somebody eats feces, and mm. I'm like, all right, I'm not i'm not down with that yeah i know this is too harsh and uh it's probably gone on too long but i have a really good streak going of not having seen love actually (laughs) (laughs) because when it came out it got so much praise Mm -hmm. from the mushy gushy romance crowd that i just i was like that's almost sickeningly sweet i don't like ensemble movies like this very much anyway and I just made up my mind not to watch it. Hmm. And then a few years ago, I realized, I actually might have been when we started this podcast, I realized, <laughs> I've never seen Love Actually. Yeah. I'm going to keep that going. I'm going to not watch it. <laughs> it's interesting because I would peg you as someone who would like Love Actually. I probably yeah. would. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I like... out of spite now? <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of like really good actors in it and everything. Everybody is in yeah, that Everybody's movie. in it. They, they're doing some uh, nonsense, that, or they already have, where they did some, some sort of reunion. sequel reunion yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. I saw a trailer for it. Uh, I don't know. They're not making a movie, and I don't even think they're making a TV series. They're just making some reunion thing. That's Cocktail like, party. Yeah, something like that. Mm. Excuse- All the cast of Love Actually. Excuse to- <laughs> the internet goes nuts for where are they now, reunion type picks. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Remember when all the Goonies posed a few yeah. years back? Yeah. The internet didn't, went crazy. Didn't Josh Brolin like put his, like have his outfit on? I think so. There, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. The, yeah. The, the I think thing. that's mm. right. All right. Next question. Hit me. All right. Long time listener, first time SoundCloud commenter. Great. Um, Don't let it be the last. Yeah, exactly. I was listening to the question about California schools in this episode, and it got me thinking about movie settings. My question for the podcast is, what is your favorite setting for a movie in the real world that is not in America? Uh, I know you guys like to turn questions on their head, so I'll clarify. Thanks. Uh, when I say real world, I mean modern day Earth. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, so no Martian for you, Jeremy. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> um, what do you guys think? You know what? Uh, there's two that came up immediately when I saw this question. Uh, Lost in Translation, which we've talked about already. Yep. Tokyo from there is like something out of just just it's just a dream man yeah. it's just uh everything about the the big city and then all the little countryside places that mm-hmm. she visits and everything i'm totally down with that i'd want i want to do all the stuff that scarlett johansson does including hang out with bill murray yeah. <laughs> um she's such a voyeur in that movie like, yeah and she almost seems weirded out sometimes like she'll go into the temple and everything and she'll, she'll see the kabuki woman and mm-hmm. just kind of like look away and then she calls her mom and says like oh you know i witnessed this thing and it was life changing and all that stuff yeah uh she gets kind of uh working with that that woman putting the flower arrangements yeah, together yeah, yeah she just goes in and out of these things it's yeah so, awesome. so great and then yeah. uh the other one i've mentioned before too is the italian countryside and stealing beauty yeah uh, it looks so lush and beautiful and mm-hmm. gorgeous and uh i was it's funny when i was when i first uh came up with stealing beauty i was also thinking of a walk in the clouds but i found out that was in california (laughs) (laughs) but it has that same kind of vibe to it i want to go to that place in california that looks just like italy i uh one of mine is the sound of music oh that's one of the first films i remember as a kid knowing just from looking at the visuals that this was not america Mm -hmm. like i i had never seen mountains like the ones she's singing on. I had never seen architecture. Um, everything about the Austria this movie presents, even if it was filmed in L.A. for all I know, yeah. I have no idea. Um, but it it felt an instantly like a different world. And mm. I always appreciated that about the movie. My, my real answer is the beach. Mm. Because. Oh, I like that. If this island exists, and I'm sure it does, the first half of this movie is riveting to me. Mm-hmm. This is a paradise. The water is so clean. They're living off the fat of the land. It's a commune, basically. But let's not forget the best part about this setting. <laughs> Shit tons of weed growing on the other side of the island. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So between the beauty and the paradise and all the weed I could ever want, assuming I can, you know, not get killed by the guys growing <laughs> it. Man, I'm there. Do they have an arrangement worked out with the other side of the island that where they nobody support? else would come, and then Leo stirs it all up when he and his friends show right. up because they weren't supposed to. Somebody gave him the map. I guess it was. Oh yeah, the uh, the train spotting guy, yeah. Robert yeah. Carlyle. Yeah, yeah. And he wasn't supposed to do that, and, and of course Leo did it too. But mm-hmm. he tells them when he got there, no, we didn't tell anybody, and so they keep the peace. And then the dumb idiots <laughs> he gave the map to show up and get all murdered. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I would go there in a heartbeat. You know. That's a good... Yeah, I like so, that. I and like that I'm, I'm guessing that's a real world because you can't build a set to look like that beach. Now, mm. it may not be as secluded or hard to find as they made it seem, but... It's Cabo. It's Cabo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. It's basically. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm a sucker for like any cold weather urban environment. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. 
but like the uh, the first part of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo mm. in the original, the Swedish yeah. version, uh, Stockholm is presented as just this really cool, really sleek, really beautiful, you know, urban environment. And for whatever reason, that just appeals to me. I am just really into like that kind of Scandinavian type of mentality, um, even though I've never been. And I'm also a sucker for any uh, movie set in Autumn in New York, because I think that's just like an idyllic How about area. Autumn in New York? Except for Autumn in New York. <laughs> <laughs> but also New York is in America. Uh, oh, yeah. No, no, no. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, fuck yeah. that. Yeah. We turned it on its head again. Yeah, we did. As, as he that's said, That's what you get for trying to outfox us, questioner. That's right. Yeah, so we I'll- just totally ignore the rules of the question. <laughs> uh, okay. Next one. Uh, what movie's aftermath? would make a great movie unto itself. Not a sequel per se, but the end of a movie's immediate consequences. Now, I love this example. Uh, For example, the end of Galaxy Quest comes to mind, Mm -hmm. where the protector crashing into the convention um, and the discovery of actual aliens, the footage of Saurus being shot to clean up and all that stuff. That's a very interesting uh, idea. Now, the question is about Galaxy Quest is, is that still unbelievable enough for people to think that it, might not be it was a show yeah, yeah. right because they i think they do believe it's just all part of the they do even well, though they but smash you have to believe they through. go outside later and look at the cars in the parking <laughs> but they lot they crash through that's the other part of it that i would be like well maybe that was fucking aliens because yeah, they yeah. crash <laughs> um but uh, i came My up cars fucked. yeah that's right i came up with a couple on this one uh the first one is the natural because oh. he he hits this home run to win the division yeah there's a world <laughs> series that happens after that <laughs> and, awesome. and there's a there's a you know there's a part in there like the movie is not set up to so that the the plot is not set up so that they have to win the world series they have to win the division to stay where they're at mm-hmm. and uh because they're gonna they're gonna move they're gonna move the the team from new york which <laughs> You know, that's insane enough. They're going to move the team from New York because uh, I guess, uh, you know, it's more money for the people who own it or everything. But there's a whole World Series that they play yeah, after that. Yeah. And uh, and it would have been nice to see how Roy Hobbs dealt with that. Did he even play in the World Series, considering that perhaps in his last at bat, he that was his last energy he had because mm-hmm. he was bleeding. I was going to say, yeah, he's bleeding too, right? He's yeah. bleeding. The doctors told him, like, you know don't go out there and play uh so it would have been interesting to see if he even even plays now it wouldn't be an interesting movie if he doesn't but, <laughs> but uh but i would like to know how they fared in that world series yeah that's a good call um the other one that i came up with was ex machina oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah i applaud that choice yeah, absolutely. Um, because we we have on a couple occasions on this podcast wondered what happened mm-hmm. once she's out there in the real world and everything the the Turing test is interesting to me because I think there's already a, one issue with it, and that is if if you're being I guess if you're being told that it's a Turing test, then you start looking for flaws and 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 all that, and then whether they pass or not is kind of it, it would be kind of tainted, wouldn't well, it? Yeah, and and that was the reason. Matter of fact, I think a true Turing test is that you don't know. Right, it would um, have to be. But that's why Oscar Isaac set that up at the beginning. It was like, I'm going to take this up a notch mm-hmm. by letting you know that this is AI, and then we'll see what happens afterwards. And that's what I, that's what I feel like for her, 
when she's uh, walking around the streets uh, and everything, like nobody is doing an active Turing test unless they're a psycho. Yeah. And <laughs> not going around going, see if this guy passes stuff. Great. <laughs> um, so I feel like she's easily going to blend in and have no problems doing all that. Even if she malfunctions in some way, that's just going to be crazy people doing crazy things. Right. I think this, that would be the end of human civilization. I think Mm -hmm. that would be the continuation of that because that's, that's singularity. Yeah. If, if you can, if she has that knowledge, then she's going to pursue that exponentially until it's all AI Mm -hmm. wipe out all the humans. Yeah. So I would totally watch that. So, yeah, it would be very interesting to see how she, you know, incorporates after, you know, getting into the real world and everything. So <laughs> She's working just, at a Waffle House. I wouldn't yeah. mind just a awkward, you know, road trip movie following her as she learns about America and meets people. Like, not mm-hmm. even really like a sci-fi thriller, but just kind of like a quirky. Anyway, <laughs> one of my answers is going to change the genre a bit, too. Uh, the first thing I thought of was Fight Club. Mm-hmm. Fight Club ends great. Yeah. But the fuck happens after that yeah if because i'm pretty sure they just succeeded and Mm -hmm. made everybody equal monetarily and that's gonna lead to the road pretty quick Mm -hmm. (laughs) right like we're gonna tear each other's throats out although i always wondered about that at the end of fight club by destroying the buildings they've somehow yeah how does that destroy all the wealth? Well, it was well, 1999, though. This was, yeah, was, was say, but- this was before <laughs> cloud computing, and right. I think you could argue that the servers might have been in that building. Yeah, mm. okay. Well, that makes sense. Uh, the one I really want to talk about is uh, Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines. Mm. Yeah. Which I think has one of the best endings of any of the Terminator movies, where they get to this bunker that they thought was a way to stop the nuclear launch, but the dad, Clarence's dad, lied. He mm. knew it was going to happen, and he just wanted them to get to the bunker for safety. So now they're in this ancient bunker with all this old computer tech that still works, and they get a radio message at the very end of the movie, and you're like, this is how he starts to become mm. John Connor. Mm-hmm. But there's nuclear fallout everywhere. And I honestly don't know enough science to know how long, but I know nobody can go outside for a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So whoever he's talking to on the radio... He's going to be in this bunker with Claire Danes for a good eight years solid before mm-hmm. he ever meets another human being. And I kind of want to see that. Yeah. I want to see two people trapped in a well, bunker who have been hating each other the whole movie. <laughs> and how do they cope with this new and, situation? And we've seen everything around that. Yeah. Like everything. We saw Terminator Salvation. We saw, you know, where they he's in the midst of it, but yep. we never see how he creates it. Yeah. It would be a great movie. He would have to use the power of his voice. He would have to be such a good speaker, like those mm-hmm. old school radio preachers or you know, JFK back when he beat Nixon. He'd have to be such a good orator to not only rally these people together, <laughs> but to end up as their leader. Mm-hmm. I just kind of want to see that develop with some of the comedy and fighting just from the closed quarters and the old tech and... Like maybe the microwave doesn't, they probably don't have a microwave because <laughs> it was built in like the 30s or whatever. But anyway, I, I'm fascinated by that. I've actually thought about this before 
uh, I would love to see that. Now that's a movie that totally should be made. I agree. We need a Terminator of movie that's the not ter- actiony. Yeah, right. I mean, instead of Genesis, you could give us that. I am totally watch that. Yeah. I, well, I am comfortable saying that I'm smarter than James Cameron. Mm-hmm. 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 There you go. You've said it many times. That's right. I, I have a T-shirt that says it. Yeah. <laughs> You'll say it again when we get out of this podcast. I will. Exactly. Cannot stop hearing about how smart you are. I want to see the world rebuild after something like Snowpiercer or. Yeah. Uh, oh. Uh, the Stand miniseries mm-hmm. based off the Stephen King book. Um, anytime like you've gone through this trauma and it settled, the dust settles, whether it's nuclear, whether it's um, virus or whatever it is, um, I want to see how civilization starts from ground zero because it's not from ground zero. Every step of civilization, the culmination that we're in right now is based on people starting of having no knowledge. Mm-hmm. If you had to reset, you still have that knowledge. Yeah. So you're not really going from zero. Can you make it better after hitting the reset button? Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of shit that I would really be interested mm-hmm. in. You know, do you do you prioritize infrastructure? Do you even go into politics? Do you do this kind of thing or, or that kind of thing? How do you start uh, with all the knowledge in the universe that you've been in? Yeah. Good call. Yeah, absolutely. Man. How that's do they repopulate gem. the species with a grown woman and a small child? All right. I got a, a, an issue with that. And Snowpiercer, there's got to be other survivors on that train. Yeah. You know, either on the train or even out in the world, because that's what I always thought the animals at the end represented, was mm-hmm. that something survived. Surely humans have, too. Now, it could just be bleak, and they're the only two left, and mm-hmm. there's no way to repopulate the Earth, really. Yeah. Um but I always thought that the the is it was it a polar bear? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a polar bear that they see at the end. I always thought that represented that there were people, there were possibly humans that you know maybe found a bunker or something like that, and or just life that we didn't realize was out there. Yeah, I think it hints enough at that. I was just like making that joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they get killed by the bear. I, I assume. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, if they could survive all the way up in the front of the train where it hit all that, you know collision business then there's got to be somebody in the back or in the middle uh, that, uh, assume you're right mm. i know what baby tastes like <laughs> <laughs> that would have been great in home, spider-man homecoming if he just showed up in his snow piercer uh <laughs> <laughs> says i know what baby tastes like <laughs> your bodies are changing yeah, that's right well we talked about scores earlier let's talk a little bit more about scores because i like this question can you guys talk about your favorite lesser known scores uh one of this person's is the opening theme from raging bull by pietro massagni massagni some italian name some italian name which is played during the shadow boxing intro credits Mm -hmm. what do you think man i'm all over this shit yeah going back to Waterworld. The score is 10 times better than anything you might like about that movie. It's adventurous. It feels like a warped version of a pirate piece of music. It's a great piece of score. I fucking love it. And then the other one I had was Heart and Souls. Again, I pimped this movie. It's still truly underseen. But at the very end, when they get to the girls, the guy's farm, it does this swell. <laughs> I just freaking love it. I guarantee you the question asker has probably not paid much attention to either of those scores. That was scored by Mark Shaman, who oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. worked on the South Park movie. Yeah. Oh, nice. So, there's pedigree there, too. Yeah, man. Anyway, mm-hmm. I love this question. I could answer this question every week. <laughs> Maybe we should come back to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 
as much love has been heaped on Ghostbusters over the years, I think the score is overlooked. Yeah. And it's got so many different themes to it because it's a and it's Elmer Bernstein, but he's got such a quirky, cool the whole thing start to finish even outside of the the pop music stuff ray parker jr stuff uh is just so much fun and i i listen to it just independent of the movie and it's jazzy and just cool as hell I yeah love it. awesome when you mentioned elmer bernstein i'm going to mention him for airplane because oh, yeah. that oh, yeah. score is perfect and i remember i think i saw this either in the commentary or one of the one of those you know documentary type things or whatever they're making a movie that doesn't cost very much at all <laughs> the airplane and they somehow get this legendary composer guy to, to do do the music and he not only does it but he takes it quote unquote seriously enough to make it perfect for that movie yeah and because uh, the music almost has to feel like it's from the movie they're spoofing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's you know that the 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 thing that I always remember from Airplane is like that. You know all that. <laughs> it's uh, it's always great. It always seems to punctuate every single thing that is going on through the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just saw it yesterday. You're totally right. <laughs> Good call. I actually have a a fully forgotten composer. Um, Alan Silvestri, yeah, oh, yeah. Um, did one of the most iconic scores of all time with Back to the Future. All the Back to the Future movies, yeah, and 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 basically a mainstay with Zemeckis. Yep. Um, almost all of his movies. Yeah, he did Contact. Yeah. actually, and did The Quick and the Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and really had a nice career, and then just fell off the face of the earth. He did. He was still working, but didn't do anything recognizable uh, for quite a while. And he did the Avengers and is now working on Infinity War and I think did one of the Captain America things. As we've talked about before, do you remember anything about the Avengers score? No, that's the problem. We could even play a game. You could play a snippet of any Marvel movie from the MCU and I would have difficulty placing it. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And that includes the new Spider-Man Homecoming score because I feel like they did to Giacchino a lot what they do to these directors like Edgar Wright or whatever where they sort of try and put you in a box. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, yes, we'll let you play with that classic 70s theme but only for the start of the movie and then we want a score that sounds like Ant-Man. Yeah, exactly. So Mm -hmm. That's the one thing that DC's definitely got on Marvel because they... Each of their superheroes has a recognizable I love theme. the Superman theme. Mm-hmm. The Man of Steel. Um, anytime I hear that, even in Batman v Superman, I think it's it's very subtle, mm-hmm. but I love it. Yeah, um, and the Wonder Woman theme is it's gotta, awesome. Yeah. You've got to have something memorable. I don't understand why they don't get that with the MCU. It's like the score's an afterthought. I know. It's really sad. It's crazy. All right, last one, and yeah. one of the funnest ones ever. Uh, if you were given the opportunity to sing any song with any band or artist, what song would you choose, mm. and who would you sing it with? I'm going to tell you right now, I've always wanted to sing Hunger Strike by Temple of the Dog. Wow. And I've always wanted to do both Vetter and Cornell. Can you can you, can you you hit that? You can hit if you Cornell? give me some practice, I could hit some Cornell. Wow. <laughs> I can't hit any Cornell. Now, serviceable Cornell. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't be able to do, like, Cornell. Well, Cornell. nobody can do Cornell. No. Uh, but if you gave me, like, oh, give me a, I don't know, how long does it take to be good at something? <laughs> 10,000 hours. <laughs> 10,000 hours. <laughs> um, I'm going to Ryan Gosling this bitch. But there's no song that I have sung along to more than probably Hunger Strike. <laughs> That's just awesome. because, especially the, the Eddie Vedder part is easy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you yeah. just do Eddie Vedder is no problem. <laughs> uh, but, but I've always been like, well, Chris Cornell has the... 
he has the one at the beginning and then he and then he's just sort of like like back and forth between Vetter yeah, yeah. after that or whatever. So he gets his one big moment and then <laughs> Vetter takes over. But uh but I've always wanted to do it because it's a powerful song yep. and I feel like it would have been it, that, there's that band that 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 goes around called um, uh, my so-called band or whatever. Oh, 90s cover band. Yeah, they're yeah, 90s yeah. cover band and and uh I've seen them twice and I I'm wondered if they've ever done that song like it would be <laughs> perfect if they could get somebody who sounds like a tiny bit like Chris Cornell uh-huh. and just do it and like I would fucking do it. I guess <laughs> you know, <laughs> if anybody's listening, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, give me some, give me some time to practice and I will I will hit both of them, man. Man, you forget how much range Cornell had. Oh, yeah. Because actually, uh, Say Hello to Heaven came mm-hmm. on the radio the mm-hmm. other day. That's from that same album. Right? Yep. And man, towards the end, he's hitting notes Mariah Carey would blush at. Mm-hmm. Like, he's like, Say Hello to Heaven! Yeah. up there. Yeah. I've forgotten all about that. That's an awesome pick. Yeah. I knew my answer immediately. My favorite band to see live, Guster. Nice. Yes. Why, why is it my favorite band to see live? Well, first of all, their music's fun mm-hmm. and good, but they usually get wasted during the show as well. Nice. And the more wasted they get, the more fun they have and the more they experiment. Like they let the drummer come out and sing and he can't carry a tune. <laughs> um, and I would choose probably either Amsterdam, which is my all-around favorite song of Guster's, or Fafa, mm-hmm. which ah. is the most rockinest buildingest party song of theirs. Yeah. Uh, but I read that question and literally was typing before I finished reading it. <laughs> you had you no had uh, you had you had written that answer and one of the songs that came up in my head was Come Come Downstairs and Say Hello was oh, another yeah. oh, one that I yeah. would want to sing or whatever. And I was like, "Yeah, let's not make this Guster centric here." <laughs> I probably told this story before, but I love this story. I went to see Guster in Nashville at the 328 back mm-hmm. when it still existed. And John Mayer opened for him, and I'd never heard wow. of him. Mm-hmm. The next year, Guster was opening for John Mayer when oh, he yeah. came through town because he had released that album that blew him up. Mm-hmm. Is like, music is weird, man. As mm-hmm. If you're a band, you've probably altered most bands, unless you're Taylor Swift or somebody mm-hmm. on the high end of the spectrum, most bands probably switch off between being the opening act and the non-opening act, depending on how successful your last well, record isn't, was. Isn't that sort of what happened with Guns N' Roses and Metallica? Although Metallica, I don't think, has ever been an opening band or whatever, but the Guns N' Roses would always come out and just steal the show or whatever. And yeah, then- so they did their their big show, or their big tour in 91 or 92, uh, when Use Your Illusion came out and the black album had come mm. out and they actually alternated the headlining spot mm. uh but yeah i mean i don't know i mean i i've, I've seen that show many times and they're they're pretty equal Shitty. man metallica <laughs> was fucking like on fire well they literally on fire yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Point. uh but then guns and roses was just uh, at their peak man mm. so yeah no that was that would be a great show to, to see live. And then Beastie Boys actually opened for Madonna one time. Oh, Whoa. wow. Yeah. I can't even imagine. <laughs> By the way, I just saw their first The Rocker day. yesterday yeah. you were talking about, which deals with the whole, like, he's not going to open for the band he used to be in that kicked him out. Right. He's got too much pride. Anyway, just, I don't know why I'm bringing that up. <laughs> <laughs> I would want to sing uh, this, this song called, and the band played Waltzing Matilda. Uh, from an Irish punk band called the Pogues. Oh yeah, uh, the Pogues. Uh, I guess were most famous for their uh, their Christmas song uh, "Fairy Tale of New York," um, but they had this album called "Rum Sodomy and the Lash" that uh, is just a, an amazing album. It really blends like traditional Celtic type of music with like modern day punk or modern day for the eighties at that point. Uh, but then the band played Waltzing Matilda is this old ballad uh, with with kind of a million verses to it. 
And their lead singer, Shane McGowan, similar to Guster, uh, was notorious for getting absolutely smashed before shows. And he didn't have the best voice in the first place. So if you go out there, first of all, it's a recognizable tune. It's fun to sing. It's like a drinking song. And probably couldn't fuck it up too much more than Shane McGowan did. So (laughs) that'd be my pick. Nice Mm. pick. I like it. All right. Well, that'll do it for this week. Uh, just keep going to SoundCloud and giving us your thoughts. Hey, we've gotten a lot of these questions, by the way, from SoundCloud and email. So keep that coming, man, especially the SoundCloud uh, comments. Uh, they're easy to, to kind of access. and We can kind of go through those quick. We, we try to answer as many of those as we can. And uh, we do have our subreddit that's always uh, available that has a, a specific question thread. Yeah, every week. So uh, go to that, too. We'll look at it all, and we'll we'll find the best of the best. You guys are good questioners. Love, love of course, everybody here in the United States that uh, that uh, gives us things. But I, I find it particularly intriguing when we get these uh, people from other countries yeah. who listen to us and everything. That's, uh, that's exciting to me. Yeah. Huge in Belgium, man. Yeah, we are huge <laughs> in Belgium. Um, but uh, anyway, that'll do it for this week. It's Chris Acton and Jeremy Scott and Barrett Share. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Comment on our episodes on our SoundCloud page. Check us out on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. And be sure to visit cinemasins.com. I think we have mentioned all the women worth talking about. Every woman. If we didn't mention it on this podcast, they are dead to us. Yeah, it's we not, will we'll never return to this topic. That's right. We'll never return to this topic, ever. <laughs> Pubic library. Isn't it public? I changed it. Music professor. What was that from? The Pubic library? The Saturday Night Live sketch from like 1990 or 91 or whatever, where the where it's like some sort of fun with computers or whatever, and there's all these kids and around a computer, and he gives the kids like the the one kid gives his friends like this brochure, and it says pubic library on it. It's like yeah, the pubic library, and he's like he's like isn't it public? And he goes yeah, it is, but I changed it. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Oh my darlings. Oh, oi. Oi. Oh, hi. Excuse me. Oh. Didn't he just pee? I think he did. What do you think he's doing now? Mmm. If he's doing more peeing, the uh it reminds me of the uh it, there's a robot chicken where there's a Transformers like there's a Transformers thing and like Optimus Prime at the end of this big battle, he's like, "Excuse me, guys, I gotta go to the bathroom." And he goes off, and then he comes back, and he's like, "Anyway, kids, it is. Wait a minute, I gotta go back." And then he's like, <laughs> and then he keeps going back and everything. And then the next scene, like, he's gone like four or five times during this whole like lesson learned type of thing. And uh, he, the next scene they cut to, he's in the ba- he's in the doctor's office, and he's like, "I didn't know that going to the bathroom could be a- going to the bathroom so many times could be a bad thing." <laughs> <laughs> And then it's like a whole thing about check your uh, prostate and all of <laughs> Remember, kids. <laughs> Always check your prostate. I'll let, I'll let Marissa Tomei do it there because she's hot, right? Yeah, I heard she's hot. I'd mm-hmm. give her an extra slice of rice pudding. That's right. Slice. Slice. <laughs> they come in slices, right? You remember when Tom Green had uh, testicular tumor or something like that yeah yeah and uh he created this whole 
PSA song about feel your balls. Oh, yeah, oh I wow. I, don't, I, I think I heard about it. I never saw it. It's like, hey, kids, rub your balls. Yeah. <laughs> Squeeze your balls. We are talking balls. about a guy who was in a movie called Freddy Got Finger. Yeah, that's yes. right, man. Mm-hmm. Daddy, was, would you like some sausage? <laughs> <laughs> was only funny moment in the movie, and it was in the trailer. <laughs> As the cat's paw goes underneath the door. He's like, I want some nature. I do. I do want to know what they're looking for there. Like, you know, please, sir, may I have some more? They're looking for like the secret latch. That's yeah. It's my understanding that when a cat confronts a closed door, anything could be behind it. Even if they were just in that room and then ushered out, and like cats are obsessed with closed doors. They they want at least mine are. Every single one of them will go up to this one closet in my house at least once a day and paw at the door, paw at the handle, ask to get in. You open it up and it's just luggage and coats, and they're like, oh. Why the fuck did I want to get in here? And they go away. <laughs> Cats are dumb. Once the door closes, they forget everything. They don't have object permanence. No, I guess that's, well, thanks for making me sound mm-hmm. dumb <laughs> by making yourself yeah. sound smart. Uh, All right. We're touching. We're touching. <laughs> We're having a good time. We're probably dicks anyway. Nah, somehow, nah. somehow, some way, we're dicks.